In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, our God. Glory to thee, heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things. O treasure of every good and bestower of life, come and dwell in us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O good one. Sit down. Most of you that were here last time came again, so so much for the accusation that people become scared when they hear about the, the toll houses, etc. But we're going to speak more about that uh, today. So this talk, Talk 47, is in a way a continuation from Talk 46. I don't usually put on the talks part one, part two, because people tend not to like that when it's part one, part two, they think it's too long or something like that. So we kind of make them independent, but at the same time they're linked. But those who listen to part two can still get something, you know, they haven't heard, they haven't heard part one. My suggestion to those who are going to hear on the CDs is that they should listen to talk 46, which that's, that's the talk that I went through the toll houses. Today we're going to do something a bit different. We're going to speak about the toll houses, but we're going to look at all the accusations against the toll houses. This is good because this will teach you and all of us how we are to react when there is this type of controversy or some type of arguments and about certain things. If you remember, those of you who've been here for many years, around talk 17, 18, there was some fellow here who was um, questioning about the, the evil eye. He didn't like it, but he also brought up as an argument, it goes like the toll houses, some are against and some are for. Of course, at that stage, and we're talking about nearly 30 talks ago, I didn't uh, touch on it because to be able to understand things, we have to be somewhat prepared. People today are quite silly and they come into the Orthodox Church and think that they can read or put their noses into things which are beyond them and think they're going to have no problems with it. But that's wrong because even on worldly level, you can't, you know, as I said before, the example, you can't be in year seven and expect to do year 12 work. That's like schizophrenic in some ways. So that's the same as the spiritual life. There are certain levels. That's why, some, like I said in the last talk, some spiritual fathers will say, don't get involved with ecumenism, don't get involved with some of these issues because it will bury you, because you're not going to know how to understand it, how to cope with it. And when we are not experienced in the spiritual life with warfare, thought warfare, when we don't know when one thought's from the devil or what's from the devil and what's not, most people think that their thoughts are their own, then when, the, when we start putting our noses into things that are above us, then the devil comes along and he starts to grind away and say to us that this is wrong and that's no good and how can the church do that? So therefore we have to leave or go somewhere else. And that's where all these schisms occur and all these problems occur. People are not aware that unless we have experience of thought warfare, unless we've got experience of 
when we are acting out of ego, pride, when we're acting out of humility, how do we know something's from God? How do we know something's not from God? Of course, that's very hard and that we have to be advanced, but at least have some idea before we go into things. That's just like someone who uh, has never studied to be a doctor and all of a sudden they go in there and they've got a few things that they read on the internet and they think that they can treat people. So, well, you've got a sore stomach. Sore stomach, you take some Alka-Seltzer when it could be cancer, but they don't know because they just think that all sore stomachs should just take Alka-Seltzer. So, is that stupid? Yes, well, that's the same as the spiritual life. So let's look at, with God's help, Talk 47. Now, before I go on to the accusations, I think I want to talk about two things, two types of judgment. One is called the particular judgment, which I touched on last time, and the other one's called the last judgment. Most of you all know what the last judgment is. But let's look at it. In dogmatic, in orthodox dogmatic theology, there are two judgments. As I said, one, the particular judgment, and two, the last judgment. Let's look at the last judgment. The last judgment will take place at the second coming of Christ. In other words, at the end of the world. After the resurrection of the dead, the souls will enter their bodies. The bodies will be raised from the graves. People will possess spiritual bodies. And then there will be a tribunal, meaning a court. So as a summary, first is the resurrection, number one. Two, the second coming, and then will be the last judgment. People will be judged according to their works, as, it's, as we hear in the creed, and he shall come again with glory, judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. So it is important to note that at the last judgment, everyone will be judged with their bodies. And the blessed ones will go internal, into eternal and blissful life and the cursed ones into everlasting punishment. That's a simple teaching of the last judgment. The full impact, whether we're going to have blessedness or be in hell, we need to have our bodies because we sinned with our bodies then we must suffer with our bodies. We did good with our bodies, then we must enjoy paradise or heaven with our bodies. Now, the other one, the particular judgment, is different to the last judgment. Now, the Holy Apostle Paul clearly and definitely teaches about the judgment which every man experiences immediately upon his death. Because St. Paul says, this comes from Hebrews, as, sorry, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this comes the judgment. This is, of course, puts down the ring, people who believe in reincarnation and other foolish demonic theories. Because they say when you die, then you come back as a flower or you come back as a cat or you come back as a rock and you come back as a schizophrenic. Because that obviously is, is ridiculous. But St. Paul says that people live once. And after they've lived, when they die, they are immediately judged. Now, you might say, but didn't you just say that the judgment takes place at the end of the world? So then how am I saying that judgment takes, or how does St. Paul say, that judgment takes place immediately after death? This judgment is different to the last judgment. This judgment is called the particular judgment, or some other people call it the partial judgment. Some others call it the individual judgment. But most dogmatic books call it the particular judgment. So, what is the particular judgment? Let's look at that a little bit more. We already learnt last week 
last month that the passage through the aerial toll houses is a part of the particular judgment by means of which the future of the soul is determined, the fate of the soul is determined through this passage through the toll house as we learned from St. Theodora. Whether she went, whether she was saved or not was dependent on how she went through the toll houses. The Orthodox Church teaches that the departed soul rise from earth, souls rise from earth through the great expanse of the air, through the air as we said, we've, we've talked about this a lot, and that angels accompany them. So as soon as we die, the angels come, usually two, that take us, Orthodox Christians, and accompany us and through these toll houses. The evil spirits detain them and accuse them of all sins which they have committed during their lives. So that's the two things that happen. The angels come and, and help and take our souls and accompany us through the toll houses, while the evil spirits, which we call the toll houses, they're the ones who accuse us and try to detain us, try to stop us. Stop us from what? Stop us from reaching heaven. For the purpose of this divine for the purpose of this judgment, divine justice uses angels, both the holy and the evil ones. God has ordained, that's how God wants it, that judgment takes place with the angels. The good angels note all the good deeds of a man while he is alive. The evil ones note all his sins. Through these sins, the evil spirits seek to make the soul a victim of Satan. For sins are marks of the soul's communion with evil and of its eternal fate, common for evil angels and evil human souls. So why do the devils want us to sin? Because when we sin, we become like them. We begin to have the same spirit as them. And when we become similar to them, then they can gain power over us. And it is this communion with evil how much we are connected to the demons, which determines our fate, whether they have the power to take us through our passions, through our sins. After the particular judgment, the soul, we remember, without the body, because the body, we are, we are resurrected at the end, at the second coming, but in this one, we, we are judged without the body, just the soul. If it makes... If the soul makes it, then it starts to experience a foretaste of the blessedness or it begins to experience a foretaste of eternal torment. means it experiences something but not the fullness of what we will receive at the end of time. So if someone has been saved, they'll experience some blessedness, a measure of it. Those who... Um, didn't make it, for example, who are destined for hell will experience torment, but slightly. So it's a foretaste. Also, one other thing before we start the accusations is St. Ignatius writes, St. Ignatius Branchinov, that the whole tradition of the church speaks of the existence of spirits in the air. Now, I've done many talks on this in the past, 30, 34, 35, 36, I can't remember, where we spoke about this, that the spirits live in the air and that's why when you study Roman Catholic type of um, uh, miracles that occur 
with their with their with their saints and inverted commas, it's always in the air, like the sun. It's like it's going to come and fall down, which happened, I think, in Spain or Portugal, and other things like that. It's always in the air that they saw the mother of God in the air, or fire in the air. It's all to do with the air because that's where they dwell. So Saint Ignatius C says that we that that the church categorically, like without a doubt, speaks that the demons live in the air, which fight a man with hatred and evil, not only throughout his life, but especially before and after his soul's departure from the body, which is called the final battle. So the demons always fight a Christian. But especially they fight at the time of death and after death. So people think, well, why are we talking about some people are okay to say, oh, yeah, the demons fight us while we're alive, but then they become a bit upset when they talk about it after death. The battle doesn't stop until, as you'll see from St. Macarius the Great, an example coming up, until we make it. The encounter with the toll houses after death is only a specific and final form of the general battle in which a Christian soul is engaged during his whole lifetime. It's a con- it's just the, the final battle of the warfare that I said that goes on in a Christian's life. Of course, I know that some people, or a lot of people, when I've they've been in the church for many years, and actually say that they're not even, they cannot understand this battle with demons because they don't feel it. Most people lead a spiritual life, as Elder Paisio says, in the head, mental, like people that watch a lot of television and fantasise, everything's in the head. So you sit down and you watch a person that becomes famous or a, or a person that's dying. The experience is mental, it's all in the head with some feelings at times of emotion. So it's not a reality, even if they do call them reality shows. People have been conditioned to have a lot of their life in their heads and that's why there's a lot of mental illness. When I see people who lead spiritual lives and they pray and they're not working, for example, some people say, oh, I don't want to work, I just want to go to church. And I've said that example, spiritual freaks before, that that is really unhealthy. The only people who may have done that are some ascetics, which are exceptional, that lived in the desert and were completely absorbed in spiritual life. Even St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, he actually worked. Even though he was an apostle, he still continued to do his trade because he didn't want to live off the people, even though he had the, the right to do that, but he didn't want to be a cause of scandal. He's only in it for the money, etc. So he avoided living off the Christians. So when you see people just li- trying to lead spiritual lives, reading deep books, etc., praying, going to church and doing nothing else, then those people will have mental breakdowns, they'll fall into deception. It's very dangerous. I remember years ago when someone said, I want to just help you, meaning me. I just want to help you. I just want to, you know, uh, go to church. I want to pray. I want to read spiritual books. I just want to do spiritual things. I said, no, 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 not, not with me. You must go and find a job. Because a lot of people are scared of the world and they use the church as a hideout because they don't want to 
have responsibility. So we've got to be very careful of that. Anyway, let's leave that. We've talked about that in other talks. So let's go to accusation one, what people say about the toll houses. And I did cover this last time. I'll just quickly summarise it, that the toll houses are fearful. The exact thing that they say is the accounts of the teaching of the toll houses are tales, like stories, little make-up stories, of horror, well calculated to cast the soul into despair and unbelief. So these poor unfortunate people actually say that the, that the teaching of the toll house has been made up by people who want to terrorise people and scare them and then that causes them to fall into despair because they read that and they go, oh, this is, oh, I mean, how am I going to be saved or something like that? And then it leads them to leave the church, to, to unbelief. We often read, as I said last time, in the Holy Bible that the, and the writings of the Holy Fathers, warnings about the future judgment which awaits us after death. So these people that they're saying the toll houses are doing this, but everywhere in the writings of the saints in the church we see these warnings and descriptions about hell and things like that. These writings, or homilies, whatever, you know, even St John Chrysostom, all of these things were intended to bring sinners to their senses. As I said in the talks in here that I've been doing a few uh, last week for the unction and, and the curse screwed icon when it came, I mentioned there that people are insensitive to the spiritual life. They've become dead. They believe that they're only bodies, like a lump of flesh. They have no idea of the next life. And it is really sad to say, or tragic to say, that the majority of Orthodox Christians are insensitive also to their souls. They don't know that they've got souls. They just they come to church, they even confess, etc., but they're not really leading a life which is that they are struggling to save their souls. If we're not doing that, then you're better off not being in the church because then the church becomes oppressive. It becomes like, um, like you're in a jail. People say to me, I find that the church is too restrictive. That's because you are not in the church for your salvation. You're in it for some other reason, either to make friends or because it gives you a little bit of uh, self-importance, like you chant or you help in the altar, or it gives you some psychological relief when you go and confess, which is the same as if you go to a psychiatrist and say your things there as well, because the, the confession is not meant to give us psychological relief. Confession is meant to reconcile us with God when we've sinned. So some people use even that. So there are all these reasons why people come to church, and that's why the church fathers quite often use these examples of the soul and eternal fires, etc., so to awaken the person to start to struggle for the salvation of their soul. Threats are necessary. They can and should warn us, restrain us from evil actions, because when we know that there's a hell, then that makes us not to sin. And it says that it helps us also to realise that we have to do good deeds. It helps us to think about our souls, about the next life, etc. 
So that's the purpose. So the people who make these accusations about the tithes is incorrect. Now, I'll tell you a little secret. A lot of those people also want, if they could, to wipe off from the church's tradition every reference to devils, to hell. And that's why today, in the majority of Orthodox churches, we have a piety which is human, just humanistic, one can say. Be good people as long as you love each other, etc. Like those type of human things with no reference to anything else, not even to the soul's eternity. Or if they do speak about the soul, they'll say it's so easy to be saved. You just do a few good things and that's it. But more about that as we go on. Saint Father Seraphim Rose writes, the teaching of the toll houses is given to us precisely so that we might labour now. Labour what? Labour what? To, to um, labour to dig up a garden and plant some lettuce. What does he mean by that? He means to struggle against the demons of the air in this life. So we have to struggle against them, against our passions, and then our meeting with them in the air after death will be a victory and not a defeat for us. How many, says Father Seraphim, ascetic strugglers has it inspired to do precisely this? In other words, how many of our, Christ, of our saints read the accounts of the toll houses or anything else about those type of things and that inspired them to begin to struggle? And I say, well, Father Seraphim says, how many ascetic strugglers? I want to change that, not disrespect of other, but I want to say how many Christians. I know many people who read accounts of the toll houses and changed their life. They understood the purpose of life. They understood what's going on and they changed their life. The topic of the toll houses is a reality which we need to look at in order to prepare ourselves for the dreadful hour of death. What follows is not written in order to cause anxiety, but to bring us to repentance. That's like saying to someone, okay, there's cheap holidays at Bali. So, I mean, why no one would want to go there? But anyway, that's another question. But let's just say they've gone, they, they go to Bali, but there's no warnings. What warnings? Well, the warning is that you can go to Bali for a holiday and end up being in jail for 20 years because they often plant drugs at the airport etc or they make people who do use drugs to buy them and then they do undercover work and they catch them and then they go to jail so lately on the on the on the news they've had a lot of things about that about the fact that um they're corrupt because when they get a westerner from australia or america in jail, then they get a lot of money out of them because that person pays a lot of money to, for certain rights and also to maybe even grant them freedom. So it's very profitable for the people of Bali to have Westerners go to jail for drugs. But if, say, someone didn't warn you and that happened, wouldn't you become upset? Wouldn't you become angry? And the answer, of course, is yes. Well, then... The same happens for the next life. It's also a journey. The next life also has... It's necessary, sorry, to, for warnings to be said. And the Holy Fathers of the Church do give those warnings. This is what's going to happen. 
So prepare yourself from now. Repent, change your life, etc. Father Seraphim mentions many spiritual fathers who tried to educate their spiritual children in the tradition of orthodox piety use the teaching of the toll houses as described by Saint Theodora as a very effective preparation for confession. So, pious spiritual fathers, not spiritual fathers that have no love. Why do I say that? Because they've got no love. If they're not warning someone about the next life, to me, they've got no love. So, pious spiritual fathers that have concern who are concerned for their own salvation and therefore concerned about their spiritual children's salvation, they actually say, why don't you read, if the person's at a certain level, why don't you read the toll houses? It's a very good way to prepare yourself for, for confession because by reading the 20 steps of the toll houses, one says, okay, that's a sin, I didn't know that, I didn't think of that, that's a good point there, etc., etc." So this helps those who live in these times of unbelief to come to an understanding of the realities of the other world, and especially those of hell and judgment. Now, as, I, as, as he says, Father Seraphim says, we live in a time of unbelief. There are so many distractions with music, television, internet, Facebook, the tweeters, the everything else. That, that, that's, it's just the person is completely absorbed in that. So therefore, it's very difficult for such people to think about the next life. When a person has a... Uh, where's our doctor friend? There. What's the thing when they have to resuscitate them? What's that, heart attack or stroke? So, a heart attack. So what happens when a person has a heart attack? What, what must they do? They have to what? What? Yeah, and what do they what 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 do they do to the body? Do they use those? Yeah. How about those things which they charge and make the person jump up in the air? What's that? What defibrillator? Did I say right? Right. The writings of the toll houses is a is a how do you say it? I've got those um. It's those things which make you jump up in the air. That's it. Charge onto the person's chest and they stand back and the person gets charged and then tries to bring them back to life. That's the same. Why? Because we are spiritually dead. We need that jolt. We need that shock a lot of times to say, this is it. The Facebook's not going to help you. The reality shows aren't going to help you. Tom Cruise is not going to help you. Some people have their idols, etc. These pop groups aren't going to help you. Money's not going to help you. Investments aren't going to help you. A good superannuation is not going to help you because you might not live to get that superannuation. That doesn't mean you're not going to go for those things. So we need that shock. That's what the Holy Fathers say is the purpose of the teachings, the toll houses, etc. Defibrillator. Is that right? Yeah. Father Seraphim continues and says, Mankind today is very pampered and self-centred and would rather not hear of such stern realities as judgment and accountability for sins. So Father Seraphim is saying that today people are spoilt. 
people don't want to be um, made uncomfortable. And hence what someone said last week, I think it was Boris, he said that they went to a person's house and um, they gave a book on the toll houses to a woman and the daughter of the woman saw that book and she got very upset and said she was going to call the police and etc. So those type of, which I don't agree, I mean, it depends on the spirituality of the person. The person's not really living a spiritual life. Sometimes it's very hard just to say these things. You've got to be careful. The priest has to have discernment. However, today that's how people are. We've got pain, we take a pill. We feel psychological... We feel depression, let's go and buy a dress or go on a holiday or let's go with our gold credit card and buy a new car or buy a boat or even buy a new face with the, um, those um, plastic surgery. That's what people do. So people are pampered and they don't like to hear about judgment, the fact that we have to give account for sins. I remember once going to a, chiro- uh, to a uh, podiatrist, that's for the feet, and I don't think she knew I was in there. And she was with another customer. I think I've mentioned this before. And obviously she, must have, she, she knew I was coming so she just started going off to the customer and says, and who are they, meaning the priests and clergy and the church, to tell me what I'm doing is a sin. I think she was a lesbian. And she was saying that, um, why should they make me guilty? And then all of a sudden she kind of thought to herself, oh. And she came out and she looked and there I was sitting there, unmoved by her rant. And then she was all... Um, quiet after that, but she was obviously worked up because people don't want to be told. That's a sin, that's not a sin. People today have such a hunger of freedom, they want to do what they want, and they don't want nothing to make them upset or worried. I mean, when you look at today, for example, the majority of women, when they live in fear that they might have a blemish on their face and they become quite distraught about it then how could you tell that person who's going to have a, a, a major breakdown because there's something on her face that she can't cover with uh, rouge and base or whatever they call those things then what can you tell them they might jump off a cliff society uses f- fear tactics to warn people number one smoking we see that today. Advertisements, um, school educational programs, you know the cigarette packets, as I've said, they've got the yellow teeth, they've got the lungs with cancer. On television, they, you know, they show a person that's dying because of smoking or lung cancer and the family crying. So they're actually using what's called fear tactics, shock treatment, so that people can stop smoking. Number two, alcohol we see, again, advertisements and school educational programs. They're doing a lot of these things in the schools. Not much success, but anyway. Drink driving, showing smashes, bringing even, as I said, people in wheelchairs that said, oh, you know, I was silly, I was driving quick, or I was in the car with my friends and, and um, they were driving under the influence, etc. and I smash and now I'm a quadriplegic or whatever. And they, sh- they say also, they warn people that they're gonna, you're going to lose your licence or you go to jail. 
Now, a person, as I was telling a person what I'm going to be doing in the talk, they go, oh, uh, at work, there's a young man that lost his licence, he told me, to about 25. He was, he, he was, drink, he, he was um, caught drink driving. And the court ordered that if he wants to get his licence back, he has to do a compulsory drink driving course. So he had to sit in a room doing this course, and in the course they showed, he said, graphic scenes of smashes and people being mangulated, etc. And he said it disturbed him and it made him very sick. Now, whether that's going to work or not, I'm not saying. I'm just saying that perhaps it will work for some. I'm saying that they use that in the world. Drugs, advertisements, again, school programs, showing how they affect people, how they affect you physically, emotionally, mentally, socially, how you, people lose their jobs, loss of family, friends, etc. Then we have the heart. How much, is, how much is being done on the heart lately? Warning people what happens if you don't diet and exercise. Even though they can't explain how come people die at the gym from a heart attack. Number five, gambling. Uh, even 60 Minutes, I think, had a program there about this um, sportsman who, who did this internet, this um, online gambling. Loss of home. Their family, they lose their family, they lose their job leads many to suicide because they go down to the casinos and spend and put mortgages on their houses and then their kids have got no house, etc. And they can't accept, they can't repent and say I did wrong, so they go and commit suicide, a lot of them. Internet fraud, number six. A lot of warnings on that lately, the fact that the banks are not secure through your internet banking because they have access and they steal your money and things like that. Identity theft is a big thing they're talking about. All these are warnings, scare tactics where they steal your private information from your mailbox, from your garbage bins, they hack into your computer, people have lost large amounts of money, even their deeds of their house, because they get all the information and then from your garbage bin or whatever, and then they say that they have you, and then they go and sell your house. And they also say how difficult it is to get your identity back. And then the number eight, social networking sites, and there's a lot of things about that lately, about how on Facebook and other things that people are getting bullied. A lot of young people are being bullied. It's called cyberbullying. Slander are there. They destroy lives. Pedophiles, of course, use those, those um, social networking to get access to children. They groom them. They pretend that they're a young boy when they're, only, when they're a 50- or 60-year-old man. And um, they're warning parents about that. Stealing information from Facebooks and photos and also stalking you because people are so stupid as to write on their Facebook that I'm going here, I'm going there, I'm going there so people have access so they can follow them and things like that. Internet dating, which is also part of the social network, is another problem as well. People are being tricked. People are emotionally starving and they're so gullible that they believe that the person that they're talking on the um, internet is some person that loves them and says all these things to them and then um, when they're really just the person in Nigeria. And um, these people, because they believe that the person on the computer is someone who really loves them, cough up a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Many, uh, sorry, there are cases of, of millions and millions of dollars leave Australia overseas from people who are gullible 
And a lot of them commit suicide because they can't believe they actually were in love with this person who didn't even exist. It was a, they sent them a picture of someone that wasn't even them, obviously. And uh, anyway, so they, they talk about that and diets, showing people that are anorexic, are sick and dying. Cults and sects, for example, Scientology and all these other things are saying, look, watch out there, that's a cult, they break up families and all these type of thing. Number 11, STDs, you know, they had a lot of advertisement about, in, in the old days about AIDS and other sexually transmitted diseases, that's all done in schools and things like that. And even lately we're hearing a lot of things, number 12, additives and preservatives about children and the effect that it has, how it makes them hyperactive, how they have allergic reactions, anaphylaxis, is that correct, the pronunciation? Anaphylaxis, so if there's a certain, co certain number, 202 or 2, I don't know what it is, 210, it can make them, um, sort of sulphur I think it is, it makes their windpipes can close up and they can die if they don't get in time. Or that's when respiratory problems, skin problems, this is for adults as well. And the last one that I just thought of is breaking the law in general. If you break the law, there's all these warnings, you go to jail, you know, there's also the Centrelink lately because they're trying to catch people that are uh, ripping them off. And what they do is that if, they, if, if you get convicted in court, then they put you on the television um, full name and face and things like that to humiliate people who are stealing from Social Security. Uh, so that's all warnings. So it doesn't seem to be a problem there, but there is a problem in the church for some reason. Number two, accusation two. That the, the accusation is that those who have come back from the dead have not told us anything of what took place. So that's what some foolish people say. They say, oh, who's come back? Who's, who's told us? No saints have said anything. And to prove their point, these critics a lot of times quote the example of Saint Athanasius, the resurrected of the Kiev caves, December the 2nd, who died, and I don't know how many days later he, he rose again from the dead, and he throughout his whole life said nothing about what he experienced after death, what he saw in the next life. He completely did not say anything. And Father Seraphim, or wherever I read it, says this is true. However, other saints that did come back did tell us. Saint Theodore is one of them, Taxiotis the soldier, Saint Salvius of Albi, and many others did speak of their experience. We also hear that there's some that actually have a, an after-death experience uh, in the Orthodox Church and then they write an account. Now, there was one, there was one that was given years ago, but I, I read it years ago, and um, I think there's a Russian one going around too lately, some video or something, is that true? Is that, is that a, my imagination? But there's one here, Vision of Heaven and Hell. This was a Serbian guy whose name is uh, Dusan Jovanovic. I would say that's a Serbian name. And he, in this book, or in his thing, he says that he saw heaven and hell and all these type of things. And as I said, um, I haven't read it for a while. I took it off there because I want to make sure because some of these things aren't real and some of them are. This one, I think, was never really approved by the church. So whether it is or not, I'm not sure. But you've got to always be careful because you might read something which is not, which is not um, correct and make, you, make us fall into despair, etc. It's got to be an orthodox, something that's been recognised by the orthodox church. And one of those is the account of Saint Theodora in the life of Saint Basil the New. So, these people, 
and some others, for example, at first were very hesitant to speak of this experience, but later did speak of their experience. Their hesitance showed how difficult it is to communicate the experiences to the living. So when people die and then they come back, a lot of times they find it difficult to communicate in words what they saw on the next, in, in the, in the uh, next life because the next life, the experience is spiritual. So now they come back and they've got to communicate the spiritual to people on earth in a human way sometimes and it's very difficult. Another reason why they're hesitant is because they're in fear of what they saw. Now, as we say, we have in the church some saints that never spoke. I think, I'm not even sure if Lazarus of the, the four days, dead, someone's told me lately that he, didn't, he never explained what he saw. I'm not sure. But anyway, and we have others that did speak. Father Seraphim in, his, in The Soul After Death, he actually says that um, that's this, why, does, why does that happen? Why do some saints speak about it and some don't? And then he says it's the same reason why some saints' relics remain incorrupt while others decompose. Some icons are miraculous and some don't. Some icons might give off myrrh and others don't. Sometimes when they want to move the body of a saint from one place to another, the saint appears and says, don't leave me there. But other saints approve of their removal from wherever they are to another place or even come back from the dead and tell the people, I want to be moved. I think St George, if I remember right, wanted to be buried where his parents were born, something like that. So he approved, he wanted that. And others say don't. Like, for example, when they tried to move one saint, I think it was a Serbian saint, fire came out of the tomb. People got scared. That's it. They said, this is where the saint wants. Why is that? That's not for us to question, is it? And that's the same as with the after-death experiences. Some saints speak about it and some don't. Accusation three. They say the examples of the toll houses are demonic visions, that they're from the devil. Now I'm going to read to you what someone wrote. I just couldn't get over the madness. Anyway, one critic of the toll houses wrote the following. He said that the toll houses, the account of the toll houses, especially the Theodora one, is based upon a hallucination of someone who, if they lived in the Old Testament times, would have justly been taken out and stoned because that person was in a state of absolute delusion. So in the Old Testament times, the Jews used, if someone was deluded, they used to just stone them and that, that solved the problem. And this person, who by the way is an Orthodox priest, actually said that if Theodora lived in the Old Testament time, they would have stoned her and justifiably because she is in deception even though that happened after she died, so I suppose they should really stone Gregory, who saw, the, who saw the dream. But anyway. It is true that many Holy Fathers warn against the acceptance of demonic visions. That's true. And from here, I have spoken for the last four years about it. However, many true visions are accepted in the church. Now, I did talks 32, 33, 34, I think 35, and I spoke a lot about demonic visions and being careful, etc. I, I did a lot on that. 
and those who want can listen, 32, 33, 34, 35. And they are uh, excellent examples of demonic visions and deceptions, etc. However, the church has many visions that are true as well. So to actually think that all visions are demonic is, is silly. Accusation four. I like this one too. Mother Seraphim lists these accusations that someone that wrote to him in response to his book, The Soul After Death. This person, a priest, didn't like it. So he wrote things like this. Number one, these things are not possible. Number two, the fathers of the church teach no such things about the toll houses. Number three, these things are all moral fables, like the hare and the tortoise, slow and steady wins the race. That's a, that, that's a, a fable, a moral fable. What other moral fables? I, never, I wasn't ever into them. Aesop's fables. They used to be some little fables of little stories to help people learn a moral. Does anyone know any? Can remind me of any? The hare and the tortoise was the one I remember. What else is there? Which one? What's that one about? The mouse got caught by by a lion, yeah. And the lion didn't want to eat him. Sorry? Oh, you spoilt it. That's not um. That's a bit of a letdown. <laughs> you had everyone listening, and then you just knock them down. Anyway, that's okay. Well, there's some story. Who knows what the moral is. The next one, they are wild tales, meaning they're just stupid stories made up, fantastic stories. Number five, the toll house myth is utterly alien to God and his holy church. Number six, the imaginary after-death toll houses. They refer to them as the imaginary after-death toll houses, like it's made up. And the last one here that I found, the account of Theodora's passage for the toll houses is a heresy-filled tale, story in other words, full of heresy. Father Seraphim writes on this, the toll houses are not moral fables made up for simple people, as this particular critic believes. They are not a myth, they are not imaginary, or are they a wild tale, as he says, as the critic says, but a true account handed down in the orthodox ascetic tradition from the earliest centuries of what awaits each of us after death. And I will, at the second part of the talk, I will go through a lot of these authorities about this type of thing. Where do we find them? But let's, let's read the next part. This is a note that's written in an orthodox life of saint. Uh, uh, in a... Um, uh, when was the Saint Theodora? Was that uh, Saint Basil the New? Was uh, March? Was it March the twenty-sixth? Anyway, so this is a volume of March. I don't want to mention exactly who and what. So this particular group produced these lives of saints, and in their March volume, in the life of Saint Basil the New, where we find this example of Saint Theodora, like I read to you last week, last month. They have a little note there, down the bottom of the page, and I thought to read it to you because I found it quite interesting. He, this is what they write. Another episode mentioned in the life of St Basil the New is the vision of Theodora, 
who served Basil for many years. That's correct, isn't it? After the death of Theodora, Gregory, another disciple of, in other words, of, of Basil, was very much wanted to learn about her life beyond the grave. He often asked the holy ascetic Basil to reveal this to him, but no answer came from the saint. Gregory himself afterward beheld Theodora in a dream. He writes that she revealed how her soul underwent tribulation after death and how the power of the prayers of St. Basil assisted her. She made known what she experienced as she passed the toll houses where she was examined by demons. She, she claimed to have seen the heavenly Jerusalem and the punishment of sinners. And so far, that's correct. That's, if those of you who were here last time will know that's, that is correct. Now comes the, the, the part which is um, mind-blowing, one can say, just you don't even know where they come up with these things. This is, what, this is the second paragraph. No church father has ever spoken of the toll house theory. It has never been defined as a dogma, so it's not even a teaching of the church. The toll house theory alters the orthodox doctrine concerning the afterlife placing the judgment of the, of the souls of men in the hands of demons who determine whether a soul is fit to dwell in the heavens or should be convicted of sin. I read that in the beginning, how God has given to the angels and the demons this authority to determine whether someone is going to be saved or not. Such an idea is mentioned neither in the scriptures nor in the Holy Fathers, nor in the lives of saints, nor in the prayers for the dead. Now, that one is really good. They mention four things. For the second part of the talk, God willing, if I get there, I must get there, I will show references to the toll houses from scriptures. I will show references to the toll houses from the writings of the Holy Fathers. I will show references to the toll houses in the lives of saints, not just St. Theodora, as we heard last time. And I also will show references to the toll houses in the prayers for the dead and in other services of the Orthodox Church. So where these people come from, that's why I call it, it's called spiritual schizophrenia. Schizophrenic is not in reality. It's a horrible disease. And they're not in reality. These people must not be in reality, so they've got, what, they've got what's called spiritual schizophrenia. They continue on the last line, the idea comes from the ancient heresy of Gnosticism, and then they refer us to some priest who wrote a treatise on it, is that, is that how you say it, called the Toll House Myth. That's a note in an orthodox book. What, what um, confuses me is the fact that they say no lives of saints, but they just said that it was in this, the life of St. Basil. Maybe they say no other life of saint. I don't know. Anyway, that's, you, doctors will tell you that when someone does suffer from that horrible disease of schizophrenia, you don't try and argue with them because they're not in reality. If they say they see an elephant flying in the air, then they see an elephant flying in the air. Now, these who say all these things, you can't argue with them. Father Seraphim writes, the true orthodox teaching on life after death fills one with the fear of God and the inspiration to struggle for the kingdom of heaven against all unseen enemies who oppose our path. 
That's we've, we've, we said that last time, and I've also said it today. This teaching of the Thai houses is inspirational. It helps people to say, I'm going to struggle. Even after the last talk, I know that um, I was speaking to a wife of someone that said to me, um, oh, my husband's now reading the Bible. I'm, he's never read it before. I said, I, I wonder why. Uh, all Orthodox Christians are called to this struggle and it is a cruel injustice to them to dilute the Orthodox teaching of the Torah houses, for example, to make them more comfortable. As I said before, that's horrible. It's, it's, it's a sign that the person, of a person who does that, that has no love, that tries to either say the Torahs don't exist or that uh, they try to water it down and say it's not exactly like that and try to make it more comfortable for people. And the, Father Seraphim says, this is a cruel injustice. Just like if I knew, for example, because I've seen on the news that people travel to Bali, it's dangerous because of the drug things and all that, and if I knew someone here said to me, oh, Father, I'm going to um, Bali next week. Can you do a prayer for travel? Because in, in the book there's a prayer on travel. And I said to them, I think you need more than a prayer. I think you need 40 days of liturgies that you can actually go there and come back without being put in jail. Now you might say, oh, that's so horrible. No, that's, that, I think that shows love to say that you're telling the person the truth. That's the same as the toll houses. You've got to say to the people the truth. If you don't, then it's cruel. Remember what Maximus the Confessor said, I think, that the sign of love is when someone is concerned for the soul of someone else, not when someone's just concerned about the education of a child or that some other thing. The true sign of love is when someone cares for the soul. And as I said in the talk last um, week, during the unction, which half of you didn't come, I actually said there that the sign of love for someone that's departed this life is when a person starts to pray for their soul, which will come to more later. Let each one, says Father Seraphim, read the orthodox texts most suited to the spiritual level at which he presently finds himself. But let no one tell him that he can dismiss as fables the texts he may find uncomfortable. Father Seraphim says, if you can't read the Thai houses at this time, don't read them. Okay, that's up to you. If you don't want to read them, that's up to you. Read books which are more your level and then slowly, slowly get to that stage. But all because you find it uncomfortable, don't go around and say, oh, they're all, that's fables and it's no good because they make people uncomfortable or they scare people, etc. Father Seraphim writes as well, among Russian Orthodox Church writers, opposition to the teacher of the Thai houses has long been recognised as one of the signs of ecclesiastical modernism. So, in other words... This fight against the teacher of the Thai houses has been going on for a few centuries, as you'll tell us in a minute, in Russia, which is why St Ignatius branching in. I've dedicated such a big section in his books about it, in defence of the Thai houses. And it is a, it's a sign that the church is going through what's called, like, a, what, how do you call it? Ecclesiastical modernism. Make the church 
modern and make it comfortable. Not only spiritually comfortable, but let's make it physically comfortable, and hence why a lot of churches have chairs now, to make it even comfortable physically. Thus, St. Ignatius devoted a large part of his volume on life after death to the defence of the teaching, which was already under attack in mid-19th century Russia. Probably the same in Greece, but I've, I've been reading these books, which are more, he's more referring to Russia, but I think it's been hit everywhere. Wherever there's people who are, who are modernists, they're the ones, they're the ones that are going to always fight the true teachings of the church, just like they, a lot of people today, priests, etc., who fight the thing about Hese the, the, the Hesychists, which are those who live in the desert and pray with the prayer rope and things like that, and they fight them as well and say, oh, that's a heresy. And we've talked about that before, I think. So, Father Seraphim continues, and Bishop Theophan the Recluse, or he wasn't a saint canonised yet, but let's just change it. Saint Theophan the Recluse gives perhaps the soberest and most down-to-earth answer to those who are unwilling to accept the orthodox ascetic teaching of the tilehouses. Let's see what he says. Quote, No matter how absurd the idea of the tilehouses may seem to our wise men, in inverted commas, wise men, they think they're wise, they will not escape passing through them. They can deny it, they can say whatever they want, but one day they will pass through them. Simple. You know, why would you read um, writings from some priest or theologian that's graduated from some seminary or, you know, some seminaries are good, by the way, but some full of modernism and all that. Why would you read something from them when you can read beautiful things that feed the soul from the writings of the saints? I, don't, I never read their stuff. It makes me sick. They write intellectually. They write in such a blasphemous way they don't even mention a lot of times the Holy Fathers, or if they do, they manipulate them to... Bang. It's just terrible. What would you read that stuff for? doesn't mean that they're not people who are connected to Orthodox tradition. Like, for example, St. Nikolai Velimirovich, who had a doctorate. I think he had quite a few of them. I think he studied all over Europe. The Serbian saint, as they call him, Serbian Chrysostom. He was educated. He had a lot of degrees, but he was... a pious person. He was leading a spiritual life. St. Eustin Povich wrote volumes. They call him the greatest dogmatic theologian of the 20th century. I've said this before. And granted that some of his stuff are a little bit deep and dogmatic, but, he's, but he, he um, wrote a whole volume, wrote a 12-volume set of the, um, of the um, Lives of Saints, etc., but he, was in a, he used to serve every day, liturgy at his monastery, which I've been to. And the nuns said, because there were some nuns that were, were still alive, when I, when I went there in 1991, there was nuns that, because he died, I think, in 79, so there was nuns that was alive that used to serve, and they said he would, he would serve liturgy every day. These people from this, a lot of these theological places, they, they find the liturgy... Um, um, repulsive. He would serve liturgy every day and they took us up to his room and it all in his rooms, all icons everywhere, every single spot had icons in his room. And she said that every day when he would pray, 
that he would, he would do a prayer to every single icon in the room. He would do his cross and bow and make a prayer to that saint, to Saint George and Saint Demi, etc., etc. So that's what we call, we call that, yes, theology, education, but at the same time that these people were orthodox, pious Christians, ascetics. Today, people are not, a lot of the people that graduate out of these places are not ascetics. They are intellectuals. And the church has no place for these intellectuals because it's these intellectuals which have brought in ecumenism and heresy, etc. Because these people are teaching the doctrines of demons. Through their mind, they gain the access. Read St. John of the Ladder, where he says, those who are intellectually proud, the demons use that pride that they've got, their intellect, and teach heresy. Accusation five, the toll houses in Gnosticism and Paganism. I, I was going to do this, but I read it to a couple of people and people got a bit confused. So I thought to myself, maybe I'll leave that out. I'll tell you it comes from the book Life After Death by Metropolitan of Naftakos Yerothios, Life After Death. And that book, of course, exists in America and here. And this is a, um, well, we sell that book as well, but it's a deeper book. He's a, see, he's a, he's a theologian, this Metropolitan. But he's also a person who leads an orthodox, pious life. And therefore, he's able to give us the teachings of the Holy Fathers in the, in the correct spirit. Now, uh, or you can find it in orthodoxinfo.com under the article, The Ta Taxing of the Souls, which is the chapter which comes from the list book. And they've got it there. And they talk about all that. But, you know, I think uh, sometimes I was really, I wanted to do it, but I think sometimes we go too deep and then people get a bit lost. So let's leave that for those who are more interested in deeper things. The accusation, accusation six, Western influence. I like this one too. The toll houses, the person, the people say themselves, are accepted only from, by those under Western influence. So in other words... I believe in the Thai houses. That means I've been affected from uh, Western influence. And any of you that believe it is Western. It means that we have the mentality of the Western church, the Protestants and the Catholics. Now, Father Seraphim beautifully says the following. The Roman Catholic and Protestant West has no notion, no idea whatever of the Thai houses, which exist only in the Orthodox ascetic teaching. They don't believe in the toll houses. They got, they got the, the Roman Catholics before, yes, but they have uh, said that that was all made up. As for the Protestants, well, they don't look at anything. They just look at only the Bible. And uh, Father Seraphim says that the attack against the toll houses in the church today is precisely from those who are strongly Western in mentality and have little respect for traditional orthodox piety. The ones who accuse people of, of being influenced by the West are themselves the ones who have been influenced from the West. Why? Let's see. 
Western rationalism, which I've spoken about before, rationalism is when people try to work everything out with the mind. So we try to work out the spiritual only with the mind. So that's called rationalism. And the Protestants and the Roman Catholics are well into rationalism. But unfortunately, it's now creeping into the Orthodox Church as well. It's been around for a while, but more and more now. Ever since the Orthodox Church has kind of gone out from the Orthodox countries into America, Australia, England, and starts to rub up with other religions, Western religions, then more and more you can see that the Orthodox churches in these countries resemble more like Western churches in spirit, in th even in theology a lot of times. So, Father Seraphim says, Western rationalism has attacked the Orthodox Church so many times in the past and has led so many to lose the true understanding of feel and feeling of Orthodox Christianity. In the Roman Catholic and Protestant West, this attack has been thoroughly successful. Which I, I, when I read this, I, said, I must read this. This is, this is excellent. He says that this rationalism, which attacked their churches many centuries ago, has been successful. Why? What, whatever lives of saints are left in these, in these churches, well, the Catholics, I think, the, I don't even know if the Protestants even believe in lives of saints, but let's just say anyway, um, the supernatural references, the things about miracles, etc., have been removed and are often considered moral fables. So when Second Vatican Council occurred, the Second Vatican Council, which was in the 60s, that's when the Catholic Church had a whole change. Vatican II said now priests can wear lay clothes and nuns don't have to wear their black and they, you know, they can show their hair. They can, it's all you know, more modern to step up with the times. That's what, um, that's what the Pope and, their, and his cardinals at that time came to a decision because the church has to come up with the, into the 20th century which at the end didn't work, by the way. They also changed the mass from Latin to English or whatever country they are in. The Orthodox have always done that. Orthodox never imposed Greek. When Russia accepted Orthodoxy, they gave them Slavonic, the Greeks, Bulgaria. Every country was allowed to worship in their own language, but the Latin church would force Latin on any country which became Catholic. Um, anyway, let's go back to this. So, why did they, and sorry, and one of the biggest things they did is to say that certain lives of saints were too much to believe, there were too, too many supernatural aspects of it, and they said that we no longer have them on the list of the saints. And so they removed them, and they tried to say, well, Yes, there were these little stories. Maybe the fathers did write these stories. However, I think they, were, they say that they were more moral fables. So when a saint appeared to someone or when a saint was able to walk on water or something like that, they said that that was trying to say something else. It was a symbolic, etc. It's not really real. This has happened a lot in the Orthodox Church as well. And that's why we've got to be careful. And that's why a lot of these 
Protestant Orthodox, as I call them, they don't really refer much to lives of saints. In point of actual fact, if you go into their bookshops, they don't even have hardly any lives of saints. They have all these books written by certain theologians and from certain seminaries and things like that. They are horrible. And that's what they mostly got. Why? Rationalism. They've come out from these universities and these places, whatever they, wherever they've studied, as rationalists. And unfortunately, these people hold the power today in the Orthodox Church. But the true Orthodox believers, the ones who are um, spreading Orthodoxy, are, you know, Mount Athos, you know, in Russia, during, just before the revolution, it was monasteries like Optina, Russia. They were into it as well because there was so much influence from the West. And then pockets here and there who were actually teaching true orthodoxy. In America, the same thing. The churches over there have been run by all these rationalists. And here and there, some other monasteries, they are leading the way in teaching people the true orthodox spirit. Accusation 7. The Toll Houses is not a dogma. The teaching of the Toll Houses has never been defined as a dogma. Now, Father Seraphim here, remember, remember what a dogma is. A dogma is a teaching of the church which is absolutely 100% correct and can never be changed. Like the creed. The creed is a list of dogmas. They, you can't change them. The church has many dogmas. The, the, um, the Roman Catholics, they change dogmas because they say, we have, now developed spirit, uh, we have now developed theologically, we understand things better than the Holy Fathers of old, and now we will expand on, our, on the dogmas, and they bring in all these stupidities of purgatory, immaculate conception, and other things that they say. They've added to the creed that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, when the fathers of the First and Second Ecumenical Council said clearly, not one change to the creed. And thereafter, the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and seventh, they all said it. The creed will never be changed. So when you speak to a Roman Catholic, they say, so why did you change it for? He goes, theology has expanded. We're, we're much more intelligent now. I said, yes, intelligent, meaning your intelligent mind, with your mind. And as rationalists, I can understand why you came to the conclusion that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, because that's what the devil told you. Because as a rationalist, you become proud, and the, and the devil gains access through our pride. And that's why dialogue with them a lot of times is worthless, because how could they consider us as backward, as retarded, spiritually, intellectually, theologically, and therefore, therefore, they've got no fear of God to actually... They don't even have the mentality because they've been so long cut off from the church that they no longer have that fear of the Holy Fathers, how we can't change them, that we must follow the Holy Fathers. They look at us as backward because we follow ancient fathers when they've got all these new modern fathers, these beardless modern fathers that wear collars. So, 
It is true that the teaching of the Torah houses in Orthodox sources has never been defined as a dogma, says Father Seraphim. It belongs rather to the tradition of Orthodox piety. But this does not mean that it's something unimportant. Well, because it's not a dogma, it doesn't mean he's saying that's, that's not important or that someone can say that's a personal opinion. It has been taught everywhere and at all times in the Orthodox Church wherever the Orthodox ascetic tradition has been handed down. So, not, not all teachings of the church is, is, a, is a dogma. Let's, let's go on and I'll prove what I mean. Father Seraphim continues, the teaching concerning the particular judgment of God is part of orthodox dogmatic theology. That is a dogmatic, that when a person dies, they are judged. That's part of dogmatic theology. In other words, with 100%, that's correct. As for the Tollhouses, Russian theologians, and I think the Greeks are the same, state that this teaching, even though it's not a dogma, in essence is completely true. He continues, many recent Orthodox theologians do not concern themselves with the subject, with this subject, or even reject it because they belong, first of all, to the academic world and not to the ascetic tradition and I'll put in brackets, which they find repulsive. So, the, today, the modern Orthodox theologians reject the teaching of the Torah houses and basically nearly everything else in the Orthodox Church because they are academics. They, are, they come out of the universities and not out of the monasteries. And I put a little note here. For example, those who are educated in the modernist orthodox seminaries and theological schools, they become enemies of orthodoxy, enemies of the Holy Spirit. Some, mon some seminaries, like, for example, Jordanville, they're attached to the monastery, so the students there, when they're learning, their when they're doing their theological courses, they have to also go to the services. Because we learn orthodoxy from, the, from worship from participation in the services. These modern theologians, they don't go to services. They avoid it. They don't like it. They don't fast, a lot of them. They don't even pray, some of them. Because they believe that, like the Catholics, that theosis, union with God, comes through the mind. Anyway, theologians who are more traditional, Father Seraphim says, have given this subject on the Thai House as much attention and he states, St. Eustine Popovich's book, Dogmatic Theology, there is, a great emphasis on, there is a great emphasis on this teaching. So even though Father Eustin, sorry, St. Eustine Popovich is writing a book which is called Orthodox Dogmatic Theology, and even though the Torah houses are not, an, is not a, a, a dogma, he still includes it in that book. So much does he believe that it's true. And, he, and it says here that he writes of the toll houses in the exact same way as they are described in the dream of Gregory in the life of St. Basil the New. In other words, what I read to you last month, in St. Eustin Popovich's books on dogmatic theology, he actually um, describes the whole account of what I read to you and more. They're the people that you show respect to. When you, when you hear people like that, you stand in awe. 
When you hear about the other ones, you run for the hills. The following are not dogmas. Receiving a priest's blessing. That's part of tradition. Now, no one's going to deny, unless they're proud, that uh, that's part of the orthodox teaching. But it's not a dogma. Lighting candles, burning oil lamps and burning incense, I think that's not even a dogma as well. As well. Performing memorial prayers on the 3rd, 3rd, 9th and 40th day for the dead, that's not a dogma. Sprinkling one's house with holy water, that's not a dogma. It doesn't mean we're not going to do it. Doing the sign of the cross on oneself is, is not a dogma. In point of actual fact, how I said before, dogmas don't change. In the, in the ancient church, which is why the old believers in Russia still do it, they used to do their cross like that with three fingers and put the two there. But later on it was changed. They've done the three together. Uh, no, two, I think they used to do it. Yeah, two, I think they used to do it. But later on it was changed. If dogmas can't change. So this is just a, a um, tradition uh, which no one denies is correct. But it's not a dogma. Priest's vestments. That's developed over the centuries, priest's vestments. For example, the bishop's crown. That, the, you don't see ancient fathers with those crowns. That crown, I think, came later on when the fall of Constantinople because that was more what the emperors used to wear. And because later on the Orthodox Church was under the Turks, the, the kind of the emperor, there was no emperor, so the emperor and the bishop kind of became the same person. He was the head of the church. He was the head of the Greeks in that time. And I think that's where that developed. I hope I'm right there. But anyway, a lot of things. Look, the Russians have that thing at the back where you can't see their head. Now, um, Greeks have the, have the ones like I wore today. So which one's right? Well, it's not a dogma. There's certain basics to it, but it's not a dogma. And that's why you see, even in um, icon, iconography, you see that the veneration of icons is a dogma, that we venerate icons, and when we venerate the icon, our reverence goes towards the person that the icon is depicting, as St. Basil says. That's a dogma. But as for the style of the icon, that's changed. Russians have a different style, Greeks have different, Byzantine, uh, you know, there's all been all different, different styles in um, Georgia, they've got a different style. Um, the Arabs have their own particular style, etc. That's, that's not a dogma. Accusation 8, mortal sins which have not been confessed cannot be forgiven during the particular judgment. Now, this mortal sins are serious sins. What bothers these people, poor things, is the 16th torment and the 17th. The 16th torment is that of fornication and the 17th torment is that of adultery. Now, we read last month where she, sa where she said to Gregory in the dream, she said, we approached the toll house of fornication, sexual sins. They brought out the records of all my deeds of fornication and accused me by naming the persons with whom I had sinned in my youth, the places I had sinned and the times that I had sinned. I kept silent and was trembling with shame and fear. The holy angels, however, said to the devils, she ceased committing sins of fornication many years ago and has since led the ascetic life of purity, abstinence and fasting. But the demons replied, we too know that she has long ago ceased sinning, but she failed to confess thoroughly before her spiritual father and has not fulfilled a suitable penance 
for the satisfaction which she should do for her sins. I explained all about the satisfaction and penances in the last talk, how it's important. It's not just enough when we just go and confess. It's, it's soul-saving for the priest to, at times to give a penance because that helps for us to receive the forgiveness. Or because the priest reads you, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are reconciled with God. The church commands that the priest gives a penance. It could be a certain time not to commune. It might be extra fasting. It might be some reading. It might be more prostrations, etc. But penances are important. And today it's a, really sh- it's a shame that priests do not give penances. Therefore, or a lot of priests don't, the traditional ones do. Therefore, she's ours. Either leave her to us or ransom her with good deeds. The angel offered many of my good deeds, but even more did they take from the gift given us by the holy man Basil. Having barely escaped this great grief, I hurried on with the angels. Now that bothers them because in their black and white uh, understanding, they say that uh, mortal sins, like these big sins, cannot be forgiven. If you haven't confessed it, it's, it's finished. Here we read that uh, she escaped, even though she had committed those sins, um, and it says here, emphasises, because she ceased sinning many years ago and that she has been leading a spiritual life. The 17th torment, she says, we reached the torment of adultery. I too had a great debt here. The evil, remember, she was a nun when she died, but she was married before. She had children. We reached the torment of adultery. I too had a great debt here. The evil spirits accused me of being an adulteress and were about to tear me from the arms of the angels. They demanded an enormous sum for my sins. The holy angels, however, began to argue with them, showing them all my later labours and good deeds. After some time they rescued me, but with difficulty. This was not so much by my good deeds, for they deposited everything that remained, but rather by the treasure of my father Basil, which stands for the prayers, the commemorations, etc., from which they also took very much to put on the scales to balance my sins. Then they took me and we went on. So this particular two torments especially... They don't like because it's saying, no, no, these sins, that's it. You, if you don't confess, they can't be forgiven. But we read different here. Before I comment more on that, but let's just read one more thing that the angels said. The angels also said to St. Theodora, if you had made a complete confession of your sins and had been granted forgiveness and struggled with all your strength to make up for them by good deeds, that's very important, I underline that, see, you that you confessed them properly and that you were granted forgiveness and struggled with all your sins to make up for that sin with good deeds. We believe, we go, we get read, that's it. And one day I'm going to do a lesson, if God, God willing, on penances where we read in the lives of saints where some um, people did some big sins and even though they confessed, they just couldn't calm down and they wanted to try and some of them um, uh, walked barefooted as an asceticism, as a, as a way to make up. Some of them fasted excessively. Some of them went and took care of those with leprosy. They tried to do something to make up for it. Now, the Protestants say God's, God's 
sacrifice on the cross is enough. Yes, that's true. That is, that is enough. But how do we gain access to that grace which comes from the cross? We gain access through, our, uh, through us showing that we are sorry for what we've done. Not, oh, I'll go, go to the priest, yes, Patushka, whatever, however you say it there, Father, I did an abortion. Okay, right, read and walk off. And that's it. But that's not it. That's why it says here, the angel says clearly, we have to make up for them by good deeds. You, if, if you did this, you would not have been subjected to such terrible torments at the toll houses. Nevertheless, you've been helped by the fact that it's been many years, again, we're emphasising, since you have ceased committing mortal sins and began living virtuously. You began living a spiritual life. More importantly than that, yes, you have stopped many years ago. Yes, you are doing good deeds now and leading a spiritual life. But above that, you've been helped by the prayers of God's holy man, Basil, whom you have served much and very well. Some people will say that's not fair because oh, she had the opportunity to receive prayers because she had contact with this holy man. And what happens if we don't have a saint to pray for us? As I was reading some material on this topic, and unfortunately I was reading it just before I was going to sleep, and then when I woke up I couldn't remember where it was. So I opened up a book somewhere, or I don't, I don't even remember, I had a few books on the side, and when I woke up I couldn't remember which book, where it was, but I read something which was really wonderful. And the, and the person there that wrote this said, that when, Christ, that when we read about the prayers of God's holy man, Basil, that this is the same, it, you, you receive the same help when you are commemorated by a person who loves you, a person who cares for your soul, a person who does liturgies for you, does good deeds for you, does memorial prayers. It's the same. Let us not think and go, oh, she's lucky. She had a holy man to pray. Above a holy man's prayers is the divine liturgy. Remember that Saint Theodosius of um, Chernigov, where's the Russians here? Chernigov or Chernigov, is it? I can't believe I actually said it right. Um, yeah, after you said it. But that, that saint appeared... So he, 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 he died, but his relics were incorrupt. And there was a priest that was taking care of his relics. The saint appeared to this priest and said to him, uh, Father, I want you to commemorate my departed parents. And the priest said, you're asking me? Your relics are incorrupt? You're a, a saint of God? Why are you asking me? He says, because the prayers of the liturgy is above the prayers of the saints. So, remember how powerful, how much grace comes from the divine liturgy. When names are commemorated in the divine liturgy for the dead, they have the potential to release them from hell. Accusation 9. This, this is the accusation. 
It is not possible that prayers for the dead can change their condition or obtain repose for them. In other words, it is not true uh, that the souls of the departed are delivered by prayer from confinement in Hades as if from a certain prison. In other words, what they're saying is, uh, the other one that we read was the persons in the process of the toll houses. They're in the process of the particular judgment. And there, the prayers helped, as it says here, to for her sins to be forgiven her, even some of those serious sins that she didn't confess properly or whatever. Here, it's saying, after the particular judgment, after the person has been put into Hades, if they didn't make it, the prayers for that person continue. The fathers say that these souls are held in Hades. They object to the teaching. Well, let me read it. So they're talking about after the judgment, when the person is with his soul, just the soul, in Hades, because they didn't make it. Their good deeds didn't surpass their bad deeds, whatever. The angel said to Theodora, when a person's soul is parted from the body and begins the journey to its creator in heaven, in other words, through these toll houses, the evil spirits attempt to stop it, producing the lists of sins. If the soul had done more good deeds than sins, they cannot keep it. But if the sins outweigh the good deeds, then the evil spirits are granted, this is the words I don't like, temporary custody of the soul. The demons confine the soul in a prison where it cannot see God, and they torment it as much as the Lord allows, obviously depending on their sins. It is kept there, here, until its release is obtained by the prayers of the church, and by the arms given on its behalf by those who are still on earth. What a wonderful teaching. I spoke about this in talk 29, or 28, was, a, was a, like a introduction. Then 29, I hit on this particular matter, and 30. And I must say that some people, when it was sent overseas, only a few who are not traditional and try to work out everything with their glovenias, their heads, they actually uh, became quite um, disturbed with the fact of this, that souls go to Hades and we have to pray for them. Those of you who were here for the service, one quarter of you weren't, um, actually would have heard during the Akathist and during the prayers, if you listened, all those prayers saying, release them, release them, release them, forgive them what they've done, etc. That was why... If I can confess something, as we'll do in the um, Panahita there, the memorial prayer, I had a temptation. The temptation was that I didn't want to do the Akathis because it's very long and it would extend the service about another half an hour. And I was tired and then, you know, saying the Akathis... It's, it's a lot of words and I've got to come here and speak for another four hours. And just I just didn't feel like I was going to do it. So I was just about to cut it off. And then I said, look, we better do it because the dead need the help. Because the Akathis is for the dead. And also I wanted you to listen to the words so that you understand what it means to pray for the dead. Anyway, so I, I, I did it. And after that, 
I got the energy to be able to finish that particular Akathis, which was wonderful, and it shows God's forgiveness and how much we have to pray for the dead. If you just just read that Akathis, which is found in the Jordanville Akathis book, I think, Akathis 1, Akathis 2 book, there's two of them there, and, it's, and it's, uh, there's also another book the, for the singular person, um, which is a good, which is good. Now, some of you might think I'm, I'm, I'm advertising for money. My answer to that is, I don't care what you think. Ella, <laughs> um, here it is here. Not this one, the other one for a loved one, for a loved one. Anyway, this is another one. Akathis to Jesus, conqueror of death. That would be probably um, a nice one to do. And this one here, I always tell people to um, purchase. Akathis to Jesus Christ for a loved one who has fallen asleep. This is for a person, one person. So when you, that one was for many people. And always tell the people, read that. And you know, people have told me, they've said that when, they, when they've had someone that's died and they, and they read this, they begin to understand the whole thing about death, how it helps the souls. And they also feel much calmer with respect to their loved one that's fallen asleep. And they feel that they're doing something. So... You know, if that means I'm trying to get money, I don't know. But anyway, that's the whole thing, isn't it? People can think what they want. And let's go on. Ah, the temporary custody. Now, in those talks on in talk 29 and um, and um, 30, I read a couple of things, and I'm going to read them quickly. St. Nicodemus the Athenite, he writes the following. So remember that, as I said, they don't like um, that section which says that souls are confined in Hades temporarily and if they can be, well, meaning that they can be released. It depends on the, the services and things like that. Now let's see, because they don't like that, let's see an authority, St. Nicodemus, he writes of Manathos. The church considers the departed brethren as sinners and not as righteous. What he means by the righteous are the saints. So to be saved, you have to be a saint. The souls of those who have fallen asleep are considered to be in a dark and distressing place and simply in the prison of Hades, which is truly a place of sorrow and a cause of, for sadness. That is exactly what the angel said to Theodora. Wherefore, the church offers supplication through the memorial service, he's talking specifically about the Panahitas, the Mnemosima, as we say in Greek, through the memorial service that the souls of the departed brethren be freed from such a place and be placed in a place of light, a place of green pasture, a place of refreshment, wherein there is neither sorrow and sighing. If you listen to the prayers that, that, I, that I was doing there, that, that the priest does, it says, grant rest with the saints. One has to be a saint to be saved. So when we die, and we die with certain weaknesses and sins, etc., the church, depending on our, how receptive we are to the prayers, is able to obtain for us release, what St. Nicodemus was saying, all the saints, for us to be freed from Hades and be placed in paradise where we become saints. Because that's what it says, with the, with the souls of the righteous, 
in that beautiful, um, the, the Evloitaris we say in Greek, I don't know what they call it in English, but um, the, the Evlo, uh, for the departed, it says, um, no, it must be the other one at the end. The other one which was, uh, with the spirits of the righteous made perfect in faith, give rest the Lord to the souls of thy departed servants. So in other words, they're not at rest. They're not with the spirits of the righteous. They're somewhere else. They're in Hades. So the Panahidas, the Mnemosima, as we say, the memorial prayers, liturgies, almsgiving that are done for the dead is for one purpose, to get those souls out from that place and into paradise. And that um, is not something which people say, oh, this is scary. This is... So in other words, one, one priest said to me, how can I tell my people that we're doing a memorial prayer because their loved ones are in Hades? I said, because that's the truth. You tell them because that's so that, uh, that, that they know and that they work for that. A council of 1722 in Constantinople said the following, those who have sinned forgivably and moderately hope to gain freedom through the unspeakable mercy of God. For on behalf of such souls, that is of the moderately and forgivably sinful, there are in the church's prayers, supplications, liturgies as well as memorial services and almsgiving that those souls may receive favour and comfort. So what's this moderately and forgivably? He says if someone dies um, uh, in a state that they're well, what we say moderately and forgivably, forgivably sinful, it means that the sins that they've committed are moderate, they can be forgiven, if they die in that state, then yes, the prayers and the liturgies and when you give money to the poor can help them. The question here remains, what exactly is this moderately and forgivably sinful? What is that? Now, some people would say, oh, well, fornication and adultery, they're not, they're not, they're not small sins, they're big sins. And to some point, they're correct. Let's see what St. Mark says, St. Mark of Ephesus teaches that the faithful who have died with small sins unconfessed, which we all going to die with small sins unconfessed, we don't remember them, we do them all the time, so we die with small sins unconfessed, or those who have not brought forth fruits of repentance, as I said before, like penance and things like that, for sins they have confessed, they've confessed them, but they didn't make up for them properly with good deeds, those people can be cleansed after they've died, either through the trial of death itself with its fear, like when they're terrorised at the time of their death, that can give them forgiveness of sins, or after they've died, when they are confined, but not permanently, says St Mark of Ephesus, in Hades. And how are they released? By the prayers and liturgies of the church and good deeds performed for them by the faithful. So, if we die with small sins... Or if we die with big sins that we've confessed but we didn't fix them up properly, then we have a chance of, that's what it says, they can be forgiven. The question remains, but isn't what St. Theodora, what she did, isn't that big sins? That's what's called mortal sins. So it seems to be a bit of a problem here. And the answer is very, very simple. The, the, the angel said it clearly. 
because you had not you had stopped doing those sins the fact that you had repented obviously what of what you have done and the fact that you were now leading a spiritual life but you failed to confess that then you need a lot of help god can still forgive but you need a lot of help now some people say well what that means we can do big sins and, and hope someone's going to pray for us I tell you one thing, as I said about my auntie overseas um, last week, where I was, last month, where I said that she, um, I didn't even know that she even died. She, I, don't think, I don't think she got hardly any prayers at all. And someone reminded me, because I forgot to add to that story, that she never allowed a priest to come to her while she was sick because she said that it would terrorise her because it's, priests only go to people that are sick when they're dying. And she didn't want to uh, fathom that she was dying, so she died without proper prayers. And as I said, I never even found out until nearly one year later. So when we think we can do that, a lot of time God blinds those around us so that they don't pray for us. If we believe that we can sin and later on to be uh, forgiven through prayers and things like that, I think that we're going to find a very big surprise in the next life. Now, why are those people so strict why are those people so unmoved and say, no, God can't forgive? And no, that's not. No, it's, and they, you know, it's black and white. And it's like they, it's all like um, for them, it's, how can I say, it's all like um, ordered. Like these sins can be forgiven, these sins can't, this can this, this can that. It's just like that's how they think, rationalism. So let's have a look at one couple of examples. St. Methodios, Patriarch of Constantinople, who became patriarch after the, you know, the iconoclasts, the, the iconoclasm at that time. That's when the Constantinople fell into heresy where all icons weren't allowed to be venerated. They whitewashed all the walls. They destroyed all icons. And it was against the imperial orders that, that they weren't allowed to venerate. And those who did venerate were persecuted and tortured and killed, etc. But when that was kind of um, stopped after the um, restoration of the icons which we call Sunday of Orthodoxy, it says here that St. Methodius had to make bishops and he didn't want to make bishops those men who, were, uh, who had extremist views, who were in some ways a bit too strict, a bit fanatical, one can say. He did this so as to avoid any increased resistance by the zealots against his efforts to bring priests to the church. In other words, at that time... Oh, sorry... Before the icons were restored, there were, there were zealots. Zealots are those who had zeal and they were fighting for orthodoxy and were willing to be tortured and die, etc. And they were defending and said, no, we have to venerate icons, etc. They had no fear and they're called zealots. And they did a lot to restore the icons. However, a problem remained after when the icons were restored. St. Methodius found that those zealots were continuing to be too strict and that their strictness was going to destroy um, the work to, to restore the church to its good order. He said that, that um, the zealots, however, scorned the tolerant attitude of Empress Theodora, that's the one whose husband died, like I mentioned last time, he was the emperor, and Saint Methodius towards the iconoclast. They felt that the iconoclast should be severely punished that those who were against the icons should be severely punished 
and that Saint Theodora, not the Theodora of the icons, is another one, with the, it's not Theodora with the toll houses, but Theodora, who was the wife of the, um, what was his name, Theophilos, the one who died one minute before he died or something, that he confessed the icons and she prayed for him to be saved. They were very lenient towards the iconoclasts. They wanted to forgive them easily, bring them back to the church and restore the church. But these zealots were too strict. They said, no, they need to be punished more. Therefore, St. Methodios, finding the monks of the monastery of Studios, I think I'm not sure how you say that word, uh, it's the monastery of St. Theodore, who was a great defender of the icons, a great saint, but he died. His monks, spiritual children of this great saint, they did a lot for the church, but later on were too strict when it came time to restore the church, to, to, to bring unity. St. Methodius found these monks to be too extreme in their zeal, who, and what he did was he excommunicated them because of their unforgiving attitude. So, look at that. Because everyone, some people, some of these old calendars, zealots and others, they go, we have to be, we have to be um, uh, zealots, we have to speak up for the truth, we've got to fight, we've got to do this. Yes, but sometimes you've got to be careful how and when. And this is a good example here that even though those were great fathers, but still they were not doing good at that time. They had to pull back on their zeal, but they didn't. So St. Methodius excommunicated them. He cut them off from the church because they were causing trouble in the empire, in Constantinople there. Another example was the first three centuries of Christianity when because of the, the people, were, some Christians were scared of being tortured, they would give up and say, I don't believe in Christ. Then they said, in other words, they denied Christ. And then a lot of times when persecution stopped, they would try to come back to the church and say, I repent. Now, there were those who would bring them in with some penance, but there were those who said they can never come back because they've denied Christ. So there was troubles even then. But I think the best one is the prodigal son's brother. When the prodigal son's brother came back, he was angry with his father for accepting him who had spent his money on prostitutes, etc., etc., and drinking. And he didn't like the fact that his father was so forgiving. So that's another example. How is it, says Theophilact of Bulgaria, how is it that the son who lived a God-pleasing life in all other respects and who faithfully served his father could display such envy? How could he be so jealous of his brother when he had everything? So what if his father accepted the brother? The question will be answered if one considers the reason why Christ told this parable in the first place. This parable was told because the Pharisees, who considered themselves pure and righteous, I like that, who thought that they were righteous and pure, were grumbling, complaining at the Lord because he received harlots, in other words, prostitutes, and publicans. In other words, he was receiving really people who had big sins. The Pharisees complained in an angry way and very, quite resentfully believing themselves to be more righteous than them. And that is the reason why Christ gave the, uh, taught this parable of, the, of this prodigal son. Such men grumble not because of envy. So he said, don't think that he was actually jealous or that the Pharisees were jealous. That's not 
That's not the reason why they were upset. Because in the beginning he says, how could, they be so, how could the prodigal son's brother be so jealous? He's got everything. So what's he jealous of? And Blessed Theophilus says he wasn't jealous. Neither were the Pharisees jealous in, of the bringing in of sinners, that, God, that Christ was so forgiving and, and was accepting sinful people. No, he says, why they, were, why they grumbled is because they couldn't understand the outpouring of God's compassion for man. They couldn't understand that God is so forgiving. Actually, I'll read it again. Because they neither, because neither they nor we can understand the outpouring of God's compassion for man. See, when I said to you a few, uh, last month, I said, if the devil repents, God will forgive him. And then I know that people looked strangely and go, but that can't be, how can that be when he's done so much evil? Remember that guy that came once and he said um, that um, I, don't, I don't want the devil to be saved because uh, he, he's done all evil. I said, well, he won't be saved because it's already been said that he's rep- uh, his unrepentance is locked. He won't unlock himself from that. Um, however, that's one example. And many of us can't understand how, for example, we read about um, some emperor who, even the, the example I gave of, of um, Theodora's husband. What was his name again? Theophilus. The Emperor Theophilus uh, did the worst sins. He killed, he had killed so many people because they venerated the icon. And his wife saw that he was dying. She didn't want him to die unrepentant. She ran to her place where she had the icons hidden because she, would, she was a venerator of icons, but she did it behind his back because it was forbidden. Anyone that was caught venerating icons would be killed. So they say in the life that deep down he knew that she was doing it, but he, because he loved her, he kind of turned a blind eye. Anyway, she took out the icons from her hiding place that she had them, brought them to his bed, and he kissed the icon, and he died. Then it says there in the life that she went into this thing about praying for his soul. And she, was, and she wanted the church to pray. And the church says, no, we're not going to pray for him because he's a heretic and he is, we don't pray for heretics in the, the divine services. And she said, no, but he repented. I've got witnesses. He repented. He showed repentance and he kissed the icon. And because of that one moment of repentance, the church fathers, including St. Methodius, decided, uh, was it? Um, no, it might have been another. Anyway, the Holy Patriarch at the time, I think Methodius came later for the restoration. But anyway, the point is that, no, yeah, it was Methodius. They decided to allow commemorations for his soul because of that momentary repentance. So then all of a sudden she started doing all these liturgies and memorial prayers and she had all these people praying and praying and praying for him. She had so many priests praying for her soul, for the soul of her husband, who in a way was like a devil in while he was on earth and he did so much bad. But see, he, his, her, her love for him was so great. That's a good example for women who see faults in their husbands or husbands see faults in their wives and they want to break up straight away. Anyway, so the point there is that she endured and she had all, with him all those years and she then prayed for him 
and then Christ uh, appeared or something and said that um, for the sake of the prayers of my priests, I forgive Theophilus and he was saved. So this is what people say, oh, I don't understand, but how can that be? So we try to use our heads, we try to be rational about it, and we can't work it out. And the thing is that that's what St. Theophilus says. It's because God, we cannot understand, all of us, God's outpouring of his compassion and love for man. And then Theophilus ends off by saying, do you see that this parable is not about jealousy? Instead, by means of this parable, the Lord is instructing the minds of the Pharisees so that they will not be annoyed, bothered in other words, that the Lord receives sinners. This then is the entire purpose of the parable, which the Lord told for the sake of the Pharisees who were grumbling that he accepted sinners. I would say that the same applies to those people who are against these toll houses. That, oh, how can she be forgiven? And how can that be done? And how can Theophilus be forgiven? And how can this be? And how can that be? It's the, like People want to look at things in a black and white way. And my last section, which is short, and we finished this first part, which is we're going good for time, I think. Maybe not. So is, a, is what Christ says in the parable. And when they had received it, he gave a parable about that he gave, he said to someone, if you work, he found someone in the morning, he says, if you work, I'll give you a denarius. And then he found someone else a few hours later, if you work, I'll give you a denarius. And then he kept on going on. And then at the end, he found someone that he worked a little bit and he still gave him the same amount of money as those who worked from the beginning all day. And when they had received it, the ones that worked from the beginning, they complained against the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and heat of the day. We've worked all day, and you give us the same amount of money as the ones that worked for one hour. They were saying it's not fair. Remember that the landowner represents God. But he answered one of them and said, friend... I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as you too. This is the part I want you to look at. It is not, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called but few are chosen. In other words, Christ is saying... I can do what I want with my mercy and my forgiveness. I can do what I want. I can save who I want and I can condemn who I want. And if we don't understand God's mercy and love, that doesn't mean that there is none. And that's the, um, I love that there. I can do what I want. So we go back to those examples that I said before. He wished to forgive Theophilus with his one-minute repentance. That's his business. And if he wished to forgive Theodora for her sins that she didn't confess or didn't confess properly, but she stopped and she, obviously she was sorry for what she did, but she didn't confess clearly, that's his business. That's it. Quarter past is where I wanted to um, stop. I wonder if you can endure the next session or will the seats be more empty? Anyway, any questions? Nicholas. Uh, Father, just um, from my understanding, uh, regarding the toll houses, 
the Antiochian Church rejected it because um, they say that we do not create a belief or a doctrine based on the vision of a saint because that's what Catholics do. Well, we, we don't do that. And um, um, I was just hoping you'd give it a the stupidity of what they said. We don't base a teaching on a vision. That's a stupidity, really. No disrespect, but what else can you call it? A blessed, a blessed view. Um, you're a little bit premature. Are you going to stay for the second half? Because that's where it's going to be um, answered. I have to answer the first one. Just wait. I'll say it because just in case some people might leave, St. Vincent of Lorenz, I'm not sure how you say that name, it says, how do we know something is an orthodox teaching? We know by referring to the writings of the great saints and church fathers throughout the history of the church, in other words, over the 2,000 years. St. Vincent of Lorenz states that an orthodox teaching is that which is believed everywhere, always, and by all. In other words, let us embrace the faith that is believed and upheld everywhere, always, and by all. The teacher of the toll houses has been believed everywhere, all over the Orthodox Church, always since the apostolic times to now, and by all. Therefore, it is an Orthodox teaching. Next question. They confuse everything, yep. Um, and the Apostle Paul says that God is not the author of confusion. Could it be that God is not the author of this teaching of the Torah? Nicholas, that's, a, that's another good little point, which is also stupid, but not you. During the time of Arius, there was confusion in the church such that the pagans would look on the Orthodox and say, what kind of a religion is that? Such a confused religion. They're all fighting. Some believe that Christ is God and some believe that Christ isn't God. And therefore, we were like the ridicule of the pagan world because the Orthodox Christians were ripping each other apart. There was disputes. There was um, killings, etc. over the issue of this. So there was confusion. But that was what's called blessed confusion because the, the St. Athanasius said that this is blessed, um, a blessed battle or a best, uh, something like, I can't remember the exact words. So no, not everything that causes confusion necessarily is bad. So the teacher of the Thai houses is good that it caused confusion. Saint Nicodemus in, the, in his time, he was a kolivar. Do you know what that means? Like he believed that memorial prayers with wheat should not be done like we did today on Sunday. Well, this is really Sunday evening. Uh, because the Sunday is resurrectional. It shouldn't be done. And there was a whole blow-up on Mount Athos about that. Him and his followers were dispelled from Mount Athos. It was, all, it was, was quite bad, and they were against him because they said, no, we can do memorial prayers on Sunday. So there was a, what? Starts with C. Confusion. Not Confucius, confusion. <laughs> so... Because what Confucius says is also quite um, confusing too. But anyway, so um, there was a confusion. But that confusion was so wonderful because St. Nicodemus then wrote a book, which we have at the back there, the green one, which, which talks about 
um, the reason for the memorial prayers. And in that, and in that, guess what, what, what he wrote? What I wrote before, what I read before, that the soul is in Hades. So he actually, because of this problem, he actually cleared up and defined exactly what memorial prayers are for. It came out for the, for the better. Now, this controversy with the toy houses, which was happened with Father Seraphim, because he... he um, there's, um, Jordanville produced this book, Eternal Mysteries Beyond the Grave, which, which is a wonderful book, about, got all about the toy houses. And um, that one's just the toy houses if you, want, if you don't buy the whole book. And then we've got The Soul After Death, that he did this as articles. When he started to produce these as articles and then he started to give them out in his magazine, Orthodox Word, these nutcases came out of everywhere and started to attack him. And started to attack him and said, this is not a teaching, this is a confusion, this is bad, this is all the accusations that I said. But, but, and there was a whole upheaval about it. The church had to step in, the Russian Orthodox Church abroad, and have a synod meeting in which they examined it, and what they did was that they asked the theologian who was based at Jordanville, Father Michael Pomazansky, which we've got his book, Orthodox Dogmatic Theology, and he wrote about the, the toll houses, so the bishops examined the teaching of Father Seraphim, examined the t- what Father Michael said, ex- and other theologians, and they came to the conclusion that the toll houses is a teaching and that those who are uh, causing this trouble are to stop. And, they, if they, and if they don't stop, they will be defrocked, which I think a lot of them were. Right? So that came out for good. It, there's, today in the church there's this whole fight with the ecumenists and the ones who aren't ecumenists. There's this big friction. There's all these problems occurring. That's good because St. Paul says, he says in his epistle, I hear that there's, like disten- there's, there's all these fighting amongst you. That's good because from that it will come out the truth. So if, we ha- if no one spoke and there was no arguments about, for example, about ecumenism, then people would start to believe that it's okay. But the fact that there is this will then, from that, people have written volumes and volumes, one of them being St. Eustin Povich, on, in his book, Orthodox Dogmatic Theology and the Church and all that type of thing that he wrote, he wrote all about ecumenism. And he explained, using the Holy Fathers, what is meant by the Orthodox Church that the Orthodox Church is one and that heresies are not part of the church. It was Why did he write that? It was in reaction to the ecumenists saying that everyone's the same. So that confusion was blessed because he gave us once and for all the pure Orthodox teaching because people had lost their way that the Orthodox Church is the one church. So this confusion, these problems. The same with the toll houses. It was good. That blow up, one can call, that that whole big fight that, is, that has occurred and still does occur, is good. And um, because it helps people start to write, and like me even today, I'm talking about it so that uh, people can if, if all that stuff wasn't around there's all this confusion, why do it? Because people would say, oh, people will read it, they'll write about it. But why I've done it in two, in two sessions the first one took four hours. This one probably will take another four hours. Eight hours on the toll houses. Why? Because there is confusion. So I'm 
I've had to, I'm not a holy father, I'm just saying, I've had to put it all in order to make it simple for the people. And by doing that, I think, with God's help, that I've accomplished that. And there's more to come because I will show um, in the second session that the ho- where the Holy Fathers, the writings of the Holy Fathers, the lives of saints, where there's examples of the toll houses, the services of the church, and in Scripture. So does that answer your question? So in other words, that what they're saying, they're rationalists. They're the ones which have come out of probably the University of California in the, in the Divinity School, and they're now bishops of the Orthodox Church spreading their slime like snails spread the slime on the ground. They're spreading their heresy. Uh, that's it. Um, sandwich time, and whoever can endure for the next session is welcome to stay. If not, you can have the sandwiches to get your energy. St. Paul said the following words after he was taken up to heaven. He says, Eyes not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So in other words, St. Paul could not describe what he saw in heaven. If he could not describe what he saw in heaven, how is it that there are descriptions of the afterlife in so many orthodox sources in particular, we find detailed descriptions in the accounts of the toll houses, as I will show you towards the later on in the talk. That the toll, there are many examples of the toll houses in the lives of saints. Saint Theodora is just one of them. However, some people can try and be smart and say, well. If St. Paul could not describe what he saw, because he said that eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart, in the heart of man the things which God has um, prepared for those who love him, then how do we have these after-death examples? And to, think, to make things more confusing, many church writers state that the experiences of the afterlife are very difficult to describe, which I mentioned earlier. Now, Father Seraphim says one must be careful not to read the orthodox texts regarding the other world and life after death in a too literal or worldly manner, since that reality is in many obvious ways very different from earthly reality. That's one. I'm not going to explain it. I'll just say what he says. He just says that we shouldn't, when we read accounts of life after death, that we should not take it literally. Now that can cause confusion. People can say, well, if, we're not taking, if we don't take it literally, then it must not be true. Another definition, uh, in a definition of the toll houses in one of Father Frem's the book that I read, I read the first part of the, of the definition of toll houses, but I left out the last sentence on purpose because I wanted to present it this time. The last sentence says, of course, the toll houses are not material entities. In other words, they're not material things but spiritual realities so they're real spiritually but they're not material as we think about them they are spiritual realities which the holy fathers choose to describe with material imagery the holy fathers they say use material things of the world to explain the spiritual like i said about the icons 
They use, like they, you see an icon which has an altar, like it shows Christ, that there's an altar and, and, and all these other things and angels with wings and things like that. But the angels don't have wings and there's no altar in heaven. Uh, and it says, but we have to use uh, earthly images to be able to get an idea of the spiritual. Father Seraphim writes, there is a distinction between the spiritual reality which the soul encounters after death and the figurative or interpretive devices which are sometimes used to express the spiritual, this spiritual reality. So, the reality is one thing of what happens to the soul after death, but the language that's used um, uh, he says, is figurative and certain devices, certain ways of, to interpret them are used for us who are on earth, who, don't, who are not a, um, able to grasp the spiritual reality. So if we go to China, um, we need an interpreter. That person interprets what I'm saying to the Chinese person, the Chinese person back to me. So the same thing is because I won't understand what they're talking about. I've never studied Chinese, obviously. So the, the, uh, uh, the same thing with this. We need some type of interpretation to be able to convey to us what is in the next life. So St. Paul's correct. Eyes not seen, nor ear heard, etc., etc. So we're not going against him. We admit, we actually say that... Um, you can't really fathom it properly. Uh, did not Christ himself do this very thing? Did he not use figurative language as a way to describe spiritual things? For example, he used images and symbolisms that weren't literal. So what is figurative language? Just a little bit of an English lesson, not that I knew myself, I had to look it up. Whatever you describe, whenever you describe something by comparing it with something else, you are using figurative language for example, metaphors and similes. Uh, anyway, what, for example, just quickly so you've got an idea. Uh, a metaphor is something where you're using something to help you to understand. So they, one thing that I found on the internet, George is a sheep. What is a characteristic of a sheep? It follows. So that means George is like a person who just follows people. He's a follower, right? So in this sentence, we say sheep is a metaphor. We're using the example of the sheep to explain George's character. Now, another one, how could she, um, and you don't have to then, you can just say it, George is a sheep, simple, and a person can understand that. And instead of having to say, he's a person that follows someone, he's a tryhard, he's a, you know, he's a this, is that, and, that, and, that. and that's too much to explain. So make it nice and short, and it just gets to the point. How could she marry a snake like that? Now, snake is the metaphor, in other words, so we're saying, instead of saying that person's husband is sly, he's this, he's that, and he does that, he does that, and does that. You just say it, which is another example that I had on the internet. How could she marry a snake like that? Snake is the metaphor referring to the husband. My father is a rock, meaning that he's a strong character. He eats like a pig. Now, eats like a pig, instead of saying when he eats, there's all food all over him and this, and you've got to go through the whole description of details. And instead of doing that, you just say he eats like a pig. That's a simile, like a pig. The other one, my father is a rock, is a metaphor. Same thing, describing. 
Let's look at that, those things that are found in the services. Uh, for example, we just had the saint, um, the service of Saint uh, of the entrance to the temple of the Mother of God on the 21st of November. The excellent couple of her august parents skipped for joy. Joachim and Anna did not skip for joy. So that's a metaphor. Skip for joy. Why is Joachim and Anna dance? For they have brought uh, forth her that has conceived the creator and God of all. That's from the service of the entry of the Messiah. So there they use metaphors, ways of describing, you know, skipping, dancing, not that that happened and that. And another one about from the service of St. John Chrysostom, there became us a trumpet sounded by God, O Chrysostom, through which the Holy Spirit has spoken to us. So there the service is calling St. John Chrysostom a trumpet, a metaphor, a trumpet, see, speaking out aloud and so everyone could hear his holy words. That's a metaphor. And the other one, uh, again from the service of St. John Chrysostom, the wine bowl, they call him the wine bowl wrought all of gold which does pour abroad mighty rivers of honey flowing teachings that have watered all creation. So here they're calling his um, teachings like rivers of honey flowing. Sweet, because it's spiritual sweet, and that watered all creation, meaning that has, that has sanctified people and, and things like that to thirsty people who are thirsty for the word of God. But Christ himself uses these type of uh, figures of speech where he says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and, and sowed in the field. That's Matthew 13, 31. So it's like a mustard seed. Obviously the kingdom of heaven is not a, a mustard seed. But he's comparing it to a mustard seed for, and there's obviously an interpretation to that which I'm not going to go through here now. Another one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who when he had found one great pearl, pearl, one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's another figure of speech. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king um, uh, who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out servants, his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. That's all about the kingdom of heaven. How about a hell? Uh, Christ says, to be cast into hell fire where... Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Obviously, there, that's a metaphor. There are no worms in, in hell and there is no fire in hell. But what happens here is that Christ is using these metaphors as a way that he's using worldly things or earthly things to explain to people to get an idea of what hell is like because it's, it's, it's too difficult to explain, but at least he uses some ways of the world that people understand, the fire that's not quenched, etc. They're metaphors, figures of speech. For if, another example, for if God did not, this is St. Peter the Apostle, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Again, chains of darkness, uh, metaphor, it's a figure of speech, there are no chains in hell. In the life of St. Theodora, I skipped it on purpose when I did it last month, where she said, death came roaring like a lion, but in the form of a horrifying human skeleton. She described death as a human skeleton. Death was carrying various instruments of torture, such as swords, arrows, spears, 
um, saws, as well as other instruments of torture unknown to me. All that, all that is figure of speech, metaphors, a way for us to understand something of what goes on. Now, did she actually see that? We'll come to that later on. But anyway, the main thing for us is to understand that this is uh, describing the reality using human things for us to understand. St. Gregory the Diologist, uh, in an, um, St. Gregory the Great, in an after-death vision, um, a sinful priest was seen burning on top of a huge stack of burning wood. So someone saw a vision of a priest, an Orthodox priest, who was burning on top of this wood. St. Gregory says the following. St. Gregory is a great Western saint, which is recognised by us, St. Gregory the Great. Uh, the burning stack of wood which was seen does not mean that wood is burned in hell. It was meant rather to give the person who saw the vision a vivid picture of the fires of hell so that in describing them to people, they might learn to fear eternal fire through their experience with natural fire. So the vision was seen in that way so that people who understand fire, natural fire, can have an idea of that sufferings in the next life. Saint Theophan the Recluse writes, these images of the afterlife represent the reality, but are not the reality itself. But that, that sounds um, complicated. They represent the reality, but are not the reality itself. So the, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. That represents the reality of the kingdom of heaven, but is not the reality itself. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is not a mustard seed. It is spiritual, noetic, free of anything fleshly. In other words, the spiritual world is not like our world here. The apostle Paul was caught up into heaven. And what did he say of, this, of his experience? That what is there, he says, is not lawful for a man to utter. 2 Corinthians 12.4 We have no words to express this, says St. Theophan the Recluse. Our words are basic, figurative, and dependent on our senses. We have to understand it with what we know from this world. Father Michael Pomazansky, in his dogmatic theology book, or in the article on the internet, I forgot which one now, the subject of the afterlife was presented vividly, partly figuratively, and using earthly images which were known to everyone in, 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 in daily life. It is perfectly clear to anyone that purely earthly images are applied to a spiritual subject, so that the image being impressed in the memory might awaken the man's soul. So when someone thinks of someone in fire, or when someone thinks about being eaten by worms, or etc., etc., then that image stays in the person's mind because he can relate to it, or we can relate to it. How to understand the toll houses? Metropolitan Makarios of Moscow, which is a 19th century person, he wrote the following. I paraphrase that, make it a bit easier. One must note that in iconography, the spiritual world is portrayed with certain features that are more or less sensuous and human. This is unavoidable. These sensuous and human features are also unavoidably present in the detailed teaching of the toll houses. As I said, like when you see a garden in an icon, or you see trees that represent heaven. That's just world, uh, earthly things that are used to help describe the spiritual, but they're not real. There's no trees in heaven. 
Therefore, one must firmly remember the instruction which the angel made to St. Macarius of Alexandria when he had just begun telling him of the tithes. So St. Macarius of Alexandria met an angel in the desert who explained to him the toll houses, another source, orthodox source. And he said, the angel said, accept earthly things here as the weakest kind of image of heavenly things. In other words, I'll put it in different words, to explain the heavenly things, we use earthly things. However, this earthly image that is used to explain the spiritual is weak and limited. It's just the best we can do in the situation that we're in. The ancient fathers considered the teaching of the toll houses as only a weak depiction of the heavenly things. I've said that life after death is not portrayable with sufficient fullness in earthly understandings and expressions. It is very difficult to understand the, the um, life after death, exactly what's happening. So the fathers say, well, we will use human everyday language and images to try to get an idea of it. Like the icon I got in the front there of the toll houses. See, and it's got steps. There's no steps in the sky. So why is it there? To give some representation of the ascending. You know, when you walk upstairs, you're going up. So it's the same thing here. It's showing that. There's an, you know, anyway, One must picture the toll houses as far as possible in a spiritual sense. One should not be tied down to the different details regarding the toll houses found in the different writings and accounts of the Orthodox Church. What's that saying there? This is Father Seraphim saying this, that... When we read the accounts of the Thai houses, that there are some difference in details. Remember that the exact detail of the Thai houses is not dogmatic. That judgment takes place is, but the details of that is not dogmatic. It can be somewhat different from person to person. But the church accepts, as long as the church accepts that person's vision. And he says here, even though the details regarding the toll houses may differ, the basic idea of the toll houses is one and the same. And what's that? What is certain is that there is a testing by demons, that's dogmatic, who appear in a frightful but human form, because demons don't have hands and heads and things like that, and tails, so they appear in a human form, accuse the newly departed of his sins, of sins, and literally try to seize the soul, which is grasped firmly by the angels. And all this occurs in the air above us and can be seen by those whose eyes are open to spiritual reality, as we read last time in the previous talk, St. Cosmas of Zografo, that he saw the abbot of Hillandar, um, he died and that his soul was ascending and that the demons were attacking him and he told all the people, to, the monks to pray in Hilanda for his soul so that he can get through them. So the truth of the matter is that spiritual people do see the toll houses. We'll see them also, but in the next life. We must approach all experiences of the other world in a cautious and sober manner. Just like a person's drunk and doesn't know what he's doing, you don't you don't read orthodox material in a manner that as if you're drunk. I'll read this now and I'll read this and like it's like you're an idiot. 
Any, anyone aware of Orthodox teaching would never say that the toll houses are not real and are not actually experienced by the soul after death. The accounts of these experiences always fall short of the reality of the spiritual world due to the fact that earthly language and images have to be used. So what's he saying there, Father Seraphim is saying, it's, uh, we've already said it, that the experience, the accounts, the stories that we read about the toll houses, is just a glimpse, just a, some idea, but they fall short. It doesn't really give us the full detail because we are using earthly language and earthly images um, and these descriptions and language is limited and weak. All, like the angel said to St. Macarius, all those who are familiar with Orthodox literature will usually understand the difference between spiritual realities and the earthly details which are sometimes used when describing after-death experiences. So we've got to be careful when we read things to see what is the figure of speech, what is the reality. When children read something of these things, they look at it as, as it is. That, that, that's okay. That's their level. But as we mature in the spiritual life, we are supposed to look at the spiritual meaning behind it and not be involved with all these little details of angels with wings and things like that. Of course, there are now Father Seraphim says, of course there are no visible toll houses. A toll house is like when we go over the harbour bridge, we've got to pay the toll. Suppose they use e-things now, don't they? But anyway, um, you won't be able to use them in the next life. We have to pay toll but there's no, as like the toll booths or something in the air, where taxes are collected and where there is mention of scrolls with all lists of sins or writing implements whereby sins are recorded or scales by which virtues and good deeds are weighed or gold by which debts are paid. In all such cases, we may properly understand these images to be figurative and a way of expressing the spiritual reality which the soul faces at the time. In other words, I say here, these images should not be taken literally. So all that what we see there represents the spiritual reality, but is not the reality itself. There are no scales, there are no steps, there aren't all these things, bags of gold. Whether the soul, Father Seraphim says, whether the soul actually sees these images at the time or can only remember the experience by use of such images or simply finds it impossible to express what he has, what he has experienced in the other, in some other way, that is all very secondary to the. Uh, anyway, let me say. Father Seraphim is saying here. Does the person actually even see that? And I would say that uh, God allows us to see things in these human forms. so as those who come back will be able to express it in some ways for people to understand. It's a spiritual thing, but, it, but with God's permission, like what I said before, like when someone's dying, the fathers say that um, they say that the person sees their relatives, but they're not really seeing their relatives. Relatives are where they are. They can't come back unless they're saints. The fathers say that it could be the guardian angel of the person who 
looks who takes on the form of the relative so as to ease the person who's dying into the idea of the next life. So when a person is dying and they see their mother or their father, that helps them to understand that there is a next life. So, Because some people are dying without any idea at all of the next life. So the guardian angel can appear as someone not being that that's someone. That's what the fathers actually say that. So how God works it out for them to see it in this way, he's saying, his father Seraphim is saying, or perhaps that's the only way they can explain it themselves. They can't explain it any other way, but they use this human way. He says here, that is all a very secondary question which does not seem to have been important to the Holy Fathers and writers of the lives of saints who have recorded such experience. Not important. And I'm going to say again, what is important? What is certain is that there is a testing by demons who appear in a frightful but human form, accuse the newly departed of sins, and literally try to seize the soul which is grasped firmly by the angels. And all this occurs in the air above and can be seen by those whose eyes are open to spirituality. That's, that's the essence. As for little details and exactly why people see it in one way and how they see it, it's not important. Why do they use these words taxes and toll houses? Metropolitan Hierotheos Vlakos, as we say in his, in his book Life After Death, that book that I just said before, he, he says the following. In ancient times, tax collectors had a very bad reputation. They were unjust because they collected large taxes that had, been, that had to be paid to their masters. So in other words, they charged more than what they were, what, what was necessary. And the people didn't and the tax collectors thought up various methods in their effort to collect as many taxes as they could. They especially used these methods with people who tried to escape paying these very heavy and unjust taxes. For example, they would hide along narrow roads and grab those passing by and force them to give what they owed. This was very unpleasant to the people of that time. The people found it really repulsive and they really hated those people, the, 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 the tax collectors. The Holy Fathers used this horrible image of the tax collectors in order to give the people of that time an understanding of the reality of the terrible mystery of death and the terrible things that unfold when the soul is being prepared for departure, especially when it's leaving the body. So the Holy Fathers said, okay, everyone knows about tax collectors. Everyone's got that image. They know that they were horrible people. They were the worst. Actually, some philosopher, I forgot, said, someone asked him, who is the worst people? He goes, in the... In the, um, in the mountains, the bears and lions, and in the city, the tax collectors. That's the way that people hated them. St. Macarius of Egypt said, like the tax collectors who sit in the narrow roads and grab those passing by, so also the demons watch carefully and grab hold of souls 
And when they pass out of the body, if they are not completely purified, they are not permitted to go up to heaven to meet their master, for they are driven down by the demons of the air. So Macarius of Egypt says, what a great way to explain the spiritual reality of the next world. Same thing. By understanding thing, I'll give you an example. Someone's got a friend. And give me the telephone. Yeah. Someone's got a friend. And the friends and the friends continually ringing up on the mobile, say for example. What are you doing? Where are you going? And you try and give the hint, but they don't understand. And they ring again and again and again and again. And you know those type of people anyway. So maybe maybe we're one ourselves. And then uh, the person says, you know, you're like an Indian um, um, call centre person. Like you pest and pest and pest him. And I, that's the best analogy because everyone knows about those people. They ring up at all times. Trying to act like they've got an Australian accent and saying that I've come to, I want to talk to you about your Telstra bill. Right? And then you hang up. And then again and again. I know one person, who was it? Um, some guy that I had to ring sometimes on his mobile and he would never answer. He goes, why don't you answer? He goes, because I've got to screen it. I don't want it to be them. They, they torture me. See? So now we can use that example, which some of you probably already do. You know, you're like, you're like one of them. So St. Macari is saying, well, why don't we use the same thing of that time to explain the spiritual reality? The devil is characterised as the prince of the power of the air because he is in the atmosphere and is constantly waging war on men. It's precisely this image which the fathers have in view, saying that when the soul leaves the body and passes through the air towards heaven, it meets the ruler of the air. In other words, the demons are likened to the ancient tax collectors. And that's why we use the words toll house and it's just an easier way to explain it toll houses, debts, etc. Father Daniel of Indonesia, who's part of the Russian Church of Australia here, but he's in Indonesia, I read something, he uses terminology, because he was Muslim before, he's now Orthodox priest, and he said that he has to explain the Holy Trinity to the Muslims, he has to use terminology and expressions that is uh, of the Muslim religion to explain it. Saint Justin the philosopher, he was a great Orthodox saint, he was a philosopher, a pagan. And when he converted to orthodoxy, to Christianity, he wanted to bring his fellow philosophers to the orthodox faith. If he started to speak them in pure, like, in, like just in terms of religious expressions, they wouldn't understand. So what he did was that he developed a language, a way of explaining a, um, Christian philosophy in a way that he used philosophical terms and expressions to explain Christianity to the philosophers at that time, to be able to bring them to the church. Today, psychology, for example, when you want to explain to someone who is fully into psychology, now, there are orthodox um, theologians, good ones, who actually use their expressions, their way, their language, to, to explain to them orthodoxy. The Western world, for example, when you want to explain to a Westerner, a lot of times uh, 
Orthodox that when I explain to Westerners, orthodoxy, sometimes you've got to use their own style of language to be able for them to grab onto, to understand. If you just go straight with the orthodox, not that you're not going to mention the faith to them in the other way, but you've got to use a language which they can understand, which the fathers always did. Um, St John Christum, for example, he used, um, in his times, the examples of the culture that exists. For example, he used to use the Olympic Games as a way to talk about spiritual struggle. He says, just like they struggle as athletes and they train just to get that little thing on their head or some medal or whatever, then, you know, that's how we have to train as Orthodox Christians to we can attain the kingdom of heaven. Personally, of myself, I often use examples from the world to explain, as I did today, there was one was the, was the Indian call centres, to explain spiritual concepts. Now, when I'm speaking, say, for example, to a young person, a person who has no idea of the church, say a 79-year-old, and I have to use things that they are aware of. So I might even say to them, okay, now, do you watch American Idol? Do you watch these X-Factor things? They go, yes. I say, okay, now... Um, those people, as you, when you watch them, they say, I want to become famous, I want to become rich, I want to be an entertainer, to be known all around the world. And their desire is so strong, it shows it because they're on the television and they really show how much they want to become whatever they want to become there. So they are even willing to undergo humiliation. They're told their faults. And some of these shows, like that X Factor, probably the American one, is seen all around the world. So you've got these people who they so much want to become, what they, what they want to win and become famous, that they are humiliated in front of the world. And they, and, and they do it. They do it. And they even say to the judges, thank you for the criticism and this and that, and some of them, you know, they listen and all that, because they really want to get that thing. So what I say to these people who have no idea of orthodox spirituality and struggle, I say to them, okay, that's the same for us if we want to be saved. We have to want it in a similar way to what they want and we have to endure sufferings because those people, when they're going on these shows, they suffer. It says they don't hardly sleep and they're always having to, to practice and... And, and things like that, and they go through a lot of stress. They have to have psychologists there just in case they have mental breakdowns. And I said, but when Orthodox Christians come to struggle in the church for salvation, as soon as one little thing happens, they give up. Why? Because we don't want salvation badly. We don't really want salvation and say that... So. We don't like our faults being said when priests aren't allowed to say the faults to anyone. We don't admit our faults. We don't show our weaknesses. But these people on these stupid shows, they actually um, sit there and they, act, and they actually um, admit their faults. They even say thank you on top. Because why? Because they know that they have to do that to win. But to win the kingdom of heaven, we don't even come near it. So actually... I say to a lot of Orthodox Christians, I look up more to them than what I do of many Orthodox Christians who don't even have really a desire to be saved. The Magi and the Star, the Magi were, um, were pagans. They, they worshipped the stars. 
And Christ did not send an angel to them because they didn't understand it. To the Jews, he did send angels because Jews understood the, about angels. But to them, he, he used the stars as a way to bring them to faith in him. So in other words, that God used the, their pagan religion, their belief in the stars, and says in the, in the Kontakion, and they who worship the stars. They followed this star because they were interested in this star, and they came to the place where Christ was with his mother and etc. The fathers of the church used the Serbian Slava and the Banyak, how do you say it? Not Bamyas, how do you say it? Banyak. Now, so the Serbian Slava was a pagan tradition. The Serbs were pagans, and they used to have a god. Each house had a god. And when they converted the Serbians to orthodoxy, the fathers noticed that they weren't going to budge on that particular thing of this god that they had in their houses. And they said, okay, yes, you can have a protector of your house, but it's going to be a saint. So they used that pagan thing that they had and converted it to orthodox thing. And they said, okay, and now the banyak, whatever, is uh, something that they used to burn. I think it's a pagan practice. They burn wood for good luck. And I don't know, I, I read it a bit on the internet. I just it was too much for me. But anyway, and what they, what they um, do today is on Christmas, they burn some bushes or hay and said, this is the represents Christ's the hay, etc. And they've made a pagan practice into an orthodox practice. See, the Holy Fathers had no problems with that. The unknown God, when St. Paul went and stood there in Athens, he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Now, someone would say, what's, what's he saying? They were pagans. But he says, I, I perceive you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with, the, with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you, and the unknown God is Christ. See, so they, that St. Paul used their pagan religion as a way to help them to come to the faith. When Christ met the Samaritan woman, the Samaritans believed only in the first five books of the Old Testament. They were, the Jews considered them as heretics. So they only believed those first five books. So when Christ met the Samaritan woman at the well, he didn't start quoting to her from the prophets. Because she does, she, they don't believe in those things. He kept his teaching to the first five books of Moses to do with Jacob's well, etc., etc. And through that, he brought her to faith in him that he is the Messiah, which is spoken about in those first five books. He found that part there. So, I hope that that has helped us to understand that the fathers were very creative. And when St. Patrick went to Ireland to, I think if I remember right, I read it, I think it was St. Patrick, but it doesn't matter, it's the essence of the matter. Was some, I think it was him. He went there and the, the Irish were into um, pagan religion. They, um, they had priests called druids. They were sorcerers. They were really into that magic and stuff like that and comes along and says to the, to the Irish, I've come to you to speak about the greatest druid, the, the highest druid of them all, Christ. 
So through their religion, he even referred to Christ as a Druid, but not as a magician, but as a Druid who is... Because um, that's the only thing they, they only understood in their heads, Druids. So Patrick said, I will use that as a way to bring them to the faith. And something to do with the clover that they had, they used that for magic and somehow he explained that the Holy Trinity, just like the flower, that green clover that they have, Father, Son, even though it's one flower but there's three leaves, I don't understand. Uh, someone sent me to, someone sent me an attachment but I didn't have time to do it. So the Fathers used all these, all these things. There was one more. Oh, forgot. So... Now we come to St. Vincent of Lorenz, or some, some French word, I think. So how do we know that something is orthodox? Well, something is an orthodox teaching if it is believed everywhere, has always been believed, in other words, over the 2,000 years, and has been believed everywhere, always and by all. Let's now go to, let's see how, what the Orthodox Church. I'm going to do A, B, C, D. A, the toll houses in the lives of saints. Um, I picked one which some of you have never heard of on purpose. St. Columba of um, Iona, I think, it's Scotland. He's a 6th century saint, June the 9th. And it says many times in, the life, in, in his life, he saw the battle of the demons in the air for the souls of the newly departed. He called together his monks one day and asked them to pray for the soul of a stranger who had just drowned. So with his spiritual eyes, he saw that someone had drowned far away and he saw the battle that was going on in the air. He called his monks and said, let's pray for this soul. His, the demons um, in the air were attempting to capture his soul. After the prayer, he said, Give thanks to Christ, for now the holy angels have delivered that stranger and triumphantly rescued him from the hostile demons. That's an example, 6th century, even in Scotland. So what I'm trying to show you is everywhere. That's, that's there. Now we go to the prologue, October the 18th, in the time of Emperor Maurice. That's another 6th century. And it says here... In the time of Emperor Maurice, there was a well-known bandit in the region around Constantinople. Both in the countryside in the capital itself, he inspired fear and trembling. Then the emperor himself sent him across as a pledge that he would not punish him if he gave himself up. This, they couldn't catch him. So the emperor said, look, if, give him a message. If he gives up, he's a cross, this special cross, which is if the emperor gave, he means he keeps his word. If he gives up, I'll let him go free as long as he stops terrorising everyone. Arriving in Constantinople, the bandit, he fell at the um, emperor's feet and begged his forgiveness. The emperor kept his word and had mercy on him and let him go free. Immediately after that, the bandit fell gravely ill and sensed that death was near. He began to repent bitterly of all his sins and implored God with tears to forgive him as the emperor had once forgiven him for what he had done. Uh, he shed many tears in his prayer so the handkerchief with which he wiped them became soaked and he died after 10 days of prayerful weeping. The night of his death, the doctor who had been helping him had a strange vision in a dream. When the bandit on the bed, on the bed breathed his last, a number of little black men gathered around him presenting bits of paper on which his sins were written and two glorious angels also appeared. A pair of scales was placed in the middle 
and the little black men excitedly put all the bits of paper on it and their side of the skulls was loaded while the other side was empty with good deeds. What can we put in, the angels asked each other. Let's look for something good in his life. And they couldn't find much at all. Then there appeared in the hand of one of the angels the handkerchief soaked with tears of repentance. The angels quickly placed it on their side of the scales and at once it outweighed the other with all, of its pa- with all the papers of the sins. Then the little black men fled, howling in anguish, but the angels took the man's soul and carried it to paradise, glorifying God's love for mankind. That basically, I don't think, differs much from the... That's basically what it is. Two angels that come and, the, and these pits of paper, which, as I said, it's... Um, metaphorical, whatever, and all these type of things is in agreement with the other one, the St. Columba of Scotland, this one, Theodora, which I think was 11th century. Now, let's look at St. Boniface, the apostle to the Germans, 8th century saint. St. Boniface relates to, in, in one of his letters, the account given to him personally by a monk who died and came back to life after hours. St. Boniface writes in his letter, quote, Angels of such pure splendour that he could not bear to look upon them raised him up into the air, the monk, as he came forth from the body. The demons were accusing him grievously. He heard all his own sins which he had committed from youth on and failed to confess or had forgotten or had not recognised the sins. Everything he had done in all the days of his life and had neglected to confess and many which he had not known to be sinful all these were now shouted at him in terrifying words by the demons. In the same way, the evil spirits brought proofs of his evil deeds by accusing and bearing witness and by naming the very times and the places, etc., which is we've heard in the other accounts. And so, with his sins all piled up and weighed, those ancient enemies, the demons, declared him guilty and unquestionably subject to their authority. The monk said himself, the monk said, on the other hand, the poor little virtues which I had displayed unworthily and imperfectly throughout my life spoke out in my defence. And those angelic spirits in their boundless love defended and supported me while the virtues greatly magnified as they were seemed to me far greater and more excellent than could have been practised by my own strength. I was a bit confused with this last part. And I'll read it again. Um, he said, and um, the angels supported me, while the virtues, the good deeds, that were greatly magnified, seemed to me far greater and more excellent than could have been practised by my own strength. And I think, if I'm correct, what he's trying to say here is the little things that he did in his life that he thought were just small things, in the next life, and when presented as a good deed, is so powerful that he couldn't believe that just these little things that he did when he was on earth were actually that significant and that uh, uh, powerful. Though it says it's magnified and it was like, okay, I might have lit a candle in front of an icon, but in the next life, even that is such a big thing. Everything counts. So we might think they're little trivial things, going to church, doing an acathirst, doing a good deed to someone, forgiving someone. We read the whole list in the previous talk 
of all these little things that people don't even think are good deeds. In the next life, they are significant. St John of the Ladder, this is now Mount Sinai. So we've gone from Scotland, we've gone to Germany, we've gone to Constantinople, now we're going to St John of the Ladder. The experience of the Thai houses is not necessarily limited to the time just after death, but can also be experienced before death. St John of the Ladder, 7th century, describes an experience which occurred to one monk before his death. So on the day before his death, while his eyes were open, he went into ecstasy and began to look to the right and the left of his bed. Those present heard him answering as if he were being interrogated by someone. Sometimes he said, the monk said, yes, indeed, that is true, but that is why I fasted for so many years. See the penance? Making up, very important. Yes, so though must have, So what this is in image is the person's dying, and that does happen where even people today, when they're dying, they're looking left and looking right, and at that time something is scaring them, and they need prayers at that time. And this person was a monk, and um, he was. they heard him speaking. The monks couldn't see in the room what was going on, but they heard him speaking and said, yes, that's true, I did do that, but that's why I fasted so many years. Then again, yes, it's quite true, but I wept and served the brethren, the other monks in the monastery. And again, no, you are slandering me. And sometimes he would say, yes, it is true. Yes, I do not know what to say to this. We read all that, that the, in the last talk, that the demons can also say lies. You did this, you did that, when he didn't. But in God there is mercy, he said. So the monk answered the demons and said, that's true what you're saying. Perhaps it might have been, I think it says here, yes, it's true. Yes, I do not know what to say to this. I've got a feeling that that one there must have been an unconfessed sin for him to say, I don't know what to say. So, but he had the spiritual experience to say, but in God there is mercy. We, as I said in the last talk, we have to become accustomed to this, to that, on earth, while we are healthy, while we are now struggling. We have to be able to say, yes, God is merciful. Remember what I said last time when I said the demons come when we do a sin, they say, there's no hope for you, that's a big sin, that's the worst sin, you'll never be forgiven. And I, and I said to you, why don't we, or when that happens, we go, but Judas himself did really, really bad sin. If he were to repent, God would have forgiven him. And even the devil himself, if he were to repent today, God would forgive him. So we have to be experienced in how to not fall into hopelessness and not to deny that God is so merciful and loving that he can forgive us anything. And unfortunately, I will have to tell you that the majority of Orthodox Christians today have not understood that. And that's why when people fall into things, they either become what we say in Greek, anesthety, which means they become dead, they, don't, they kind of don't feel what they've done. Or they become hopeless and fall away. So that's one of the things we have to learn. That when we fall, that we have to understand that God is merciful and run to him for forgiveness. And obviously we go to the confessor and things like that. And do things of penance. And it was truly an awful and horrible sight this invisible and merciless interrogation. 
And what was most terrible, he was accused of what he had not done. How amazing. Of several of his sins, the hesychist and hermit said, I do not know what to say to this. Um, although he had been a monk for nearly 40 years and had the gift of tears. And while thus being called to account, he was parted from his body, leaving us in uncertainty as to his judgment or end or sentence or how the trial ended. Now, someone can read that last part and go, oh, look, look, look what they're saying, that he was a monk 40 years and he wasn't saved. I think it's just trying to say that we have to always be ready. And um, if he died with sins, and if he died in a, in a state, which, which it sounds like he did, that he was receptive to God's grace, then of course, obviously, then he would be commemorated and the fathers would pray for his soul, etc. But St. John the Loud has given that example to teach the monks of his time to be ready. St. Macarius the Great, some saints such as Macarius the Great, 4th century, January the 19th, whose passage to the Tyrus was seen by several of his disciples, ascend, they saw him ascend through the demonic tax collectors without opposition because they have already fought them and won the battle in this life. Here is the incident, battle in this life. Here is the incident from his life. So St. Macarius died and his disciples saw him go through the toll houses, passing the toll houses. When the time came for the death of St. Macarius, the cherubim, who was his guardian angel, accompanied by a multitude of the heavenly host, came for his soul. Well, this is a little bit different because we read other ones that there's two that come. Here it says that a lot came. That's a little detail which is a bit different and that's what I was trying to say to you before um, that maybe because he was such a great saint and I think when the saints die even saints come and all that. With the ranks of angels there also descended choirs of oh, here it is, apostles, prophets, martyrs, hierarchs, monks and righteous ones. The demons disposed themselves in ranks and crowds in their toll houses in order to behold the passage of the God-bearing soul. It began to ascend. In other words, St. Macarius' soul began to ascend. Standing far from it, I like that, standing far from it. Why far? Why don't they come up like they did with Theodora? They couldn't approach him because he was, he was fully ablaze with the Holy Spirit. They couldn't approach him. Standing from afar... The dark spirits shouted from their toll houses, O Macarius, what glory you have been vouchsafed. What's going on there? Who knows? O Macarius, what glory you have been vouchsafed as they stood far off. Who knows what's, what's going on there? They'll, that's right, they were praising him. While we're alive, we either praise ourselves or others praise us, which we like, or the demons praise us. So, O Macarius, what glory you have been given. The humble man answered them. I love that. The humble man. No, I still fear because I do not know whether I have done anything good. See humility? Not words, not what we say in Greek, which means humble speaking. We all can speak humbly. You know, some sick people that, you know, they, they say, oh, I'm just a worm. I'm just. I'm just. Um, I'm just worthless. But if you say something about me, I'll rip your eyes out. <laughs> um, so, that's of course that's called humble, humble speaking. But this one here, obviously, is not humble speaking. He meant it. He says, well, maybe what I've done is not enough. 
So he, his reaction to their praise was humility. From, um, meanwhile, he swiftly ascended to heaven. From other higher toll houses, the aerial powers again cried out, just so, you have escaped us. Still going for it. Praise him. Macarius, um, yeah, sorry. You have escaped us, Macarius. No, he replied, I still need to flee. Didn't trust himself. That's such a wonderful example of how we mustn't trust ourselves. And that's the problem with spiritual life today, that we trust ourselves. We trust in our ability, we trust in our power, and we don't have that thing of the saints not to trust ourselves. Not to have that confidence, of course God's going to save me. I do so many good things. But instead to say that what I do is all mixed with pride, and perhaps what I thought was good in God's eyes is not good. So, Lord, have mercy. We say, Lord, just save me from your mercy, not for my good deeds. When he had already come to the gates of heaven, lamenting out of malice and envy, they cried out, so they were crying, howling. They cried out, just so you did escape us, Macarius. He replied, guarded by the power of my Christ, I have escaped your nets, because he got in. I like that. I heard this many years ago when I was younger, when I first came to church, and some monk told me this story, but I didn't know it was exactly this one. But uh, he said that, you know, he was going up and up and up and they were praising him. And they said, you've made it, you've escaped us, you've escaped us. And then they had the monk described to me, he got into um, paradise. Once he knew he was in, he goes, now I've escaped you. You see? And that's the way we should think. Humility is the only way. Remember what St. Anthony? He stood on the mountain. And his spiritual eyes were open. And he saw in the world at one time, through his spiritual insight, he saw every single trap that the demons do to to make Christians fall and to pull them away from the church. He saw them all. And he became hopeless. He said that there's no hope. This is just... There are so many ways that the demons are using to um, make people fall into sin and to make them deny Christ or to just to get them away from the church, etc. And he, and he let out a prayer and he said to Christ, is there any hope? And Christ, or the angel, I can't remember the full story, answered and said, yes, with humility. The only way we can get through demonic temptations, etc., is with humility. And that's the problem. We do not cultivate humility. Because the world teaches us self-esteem. The world teaches us confidence. When you do those appraisals at work, you've got to write all your good points, your strengths. That's the way of the world now. But you have to be very careful because the world pumps us to be proud and self-trust and all this self-esteem. So... And one more, I've said this example before, Uh, an angel appeared to a monk in his room while he was praying, and it was a real, no, sorry, Christ appeared. So the the monk sees Christ standing in his room. So the monk, this could be a real, this this could have been a real vision or could have been a demonic vision. 
the, the monk did not have the discernment to know whether this vision was true or not. It's because you have to have spiritual discernment to feel, you've got to know what you feel, and except there's a lot of things there because you can be tricked. So what's the best advice that I've said before? Reject all visions, whether real or not. Reject dreams, reject visions, reject all those things. So the monk, the monk looked and, and then the, this figure, which could have been Christ, it might have been the devil, said to him that um, I, I've, I've come to um, visit you. And no, uh, no, I've been sent, I've been sent to you uh, for blessing, I can't remember. And the monk said, with humility, you must have been sent to someone else because I'm not worthy of being visited by Christ. And, the, and it turned out that it was Christ. But the person was not punished because that is what God wants us. He wants us even to reject true visions of himself. Unless, of course, the church, back to your thing, accepts these visions and lets it come out as a teaching of the God. Not a teaching, as a, an example that is to be believed. Saint, uh, um, and now we finish um, part A, and we say other examples in the lives of saints. Because remember that person, the critic said in the previous that you know, no lives of saints have ever described the toll houses. I've just gone through a few, and I'm going to go through. I'm just going. I'm not going to read. I'm just going to tell you the names. Experience of the toll houses can also be found in the lives of saints. Saint Evstratius the Great Martyr, fourth century, December 13. Saint Nymphon of Constantia in Cyprus, who saw many souls ascending through the Tyasus, 4th century, December 23rd. Saint Simeon the Fool for Christ of Emesa, 6th century, July 21st. Saint John the Merciful, Patriarch of Alexandria, 7th century, prologue for December 19th. Daxiotis the Soldier, March 28th, I don't know what century he was. Saint Simeon, the one, Saint Simeon of Wondrous Mountain, 7th century, prologue, uh, for March 13. Uh, so the statement that they're not found in lives of saints is not correct. They're found and they're found in a lot. But let's go on. The next accusation, if you remember, said they're not found in the services of the church. The divine services of the Orthodox Church contain many references to the toll houses. One, in Compline. Some of you do read Compline. There's a part there of a prayer to the Mother of God which says, And in the hour of my departure, to care for my wretched soul and drive far from it the dark countenance of evil demons, words, the dark faces of the demons at the time that I'm departing. So that is a reference to the demons coming to us after we've departed this life. The Ochtoichos, which was composed by St. John Damascene, a great Orthodox father, these are a service, it's a set of service books in different tones. Monastics do that. Um, uh, Saint John of the uh, Saint John Damascus. Anyway, he says, oh, "This is in um, Tone Four, Friday, Ode Eight at Matins. O Virgin, in the hour of my death, rescue me from the hands of the demons, and the judgment, and the accusation, and the frightful testing, and the bitter tollhouses, and the fierce prince, and eternal condemnation, O Mother of God." That is an ex a, um, a exact reference, and these octoichos are, rec are accepted by every Orthodox church in the world, including the Antiochians. Number two, octoichos, part two. When my soul shall be about to be released from the bond with the flesh, 
Intercede for me, O sovereign lady, that I may pass unhindered through the princes of darkness standing in the air. Tone 2, Saturday, Apostica Theotokarian Matins. Some of you don't understand that reference, but some of the people who are going to listen to the talk, they can look it up. Another one from the Octoikos. Sunday midnight service, tone 1, canonical 7. Uh, this is addressed to the Mother of God. Most of these are addressed to the Mother of God. In the dread hour of death, pluck me out from the midst of the accusing demons and from every punishment. That is again reference to the toll houses. Some are more direct, like the one before, and some are like semi-direct. Um, someone said to me once oh, that they read in the prologue that when the mother of God was dying, she was scared to go for the toll houses. And that made him get upset and, and he lost it a bit. And, I, and, you know, as I've been reading the services of the church and seeing all these references to the mother of God and we ask her help, in other, in other words, she was scared to go for the toll houses, but because she was scared, she is now the main person we pray to to help us through the toll houses. So that came out as a positive. Um, I think that's why in the icon of the Domitian, um, Christ himself came in. To share, to, that he himself came and people say, oh, that's because she was the mother of God. And therefore, what's for us? And it's all hopeless. No, because from this troparia and things that we're in, we are showing that the mother of God, because she did, uh, she was scared, she has become the main person for us to be helped at the time of death. With, now, here's another one. This service is, comes from Archangel Michael, sessional hymn after 03. Without cease we cry, O virgin, since thou art good, come and save us. Our all-compassionate bride of God, at the dread hour of reckoning, like the court, and from the demon's dark grasp and inquisition, rescue us, lest thy servants be put to same. Inquisition means like a court case, inquiry, which is what we said that was what goes on in the afterlife. And um, uh, so, um, someone who's heard my talk actually said, oh, after I heard the last talk, I began to, when I'm, when I'm reading the services, it's a monk, when I'm reading the services, I'm becoming a bit more aware of the Tollhouse references. And he actually found this for me. It, he sent it to me. Um, uh, November the 26th in the Lives of Saints, third ode of Saint Alipios, which was a couple of days ago. And it says, In the fearful hour of death, deliver me swiftly from the frightful sentence of demonic accusers, pure virgin, most merciful. So though, that's why, and when, when we read um, services, we will come across that. It's good if you could actually read these books. Um, grant, he's from the service of St. John Chrysostom. Grant me to escape the host of noetic rulers, the aerial legions of tormentors without grief at the hour of my departure, that I might cry joyful to thee, O lady, rejoice, O unashamed hope of all. In other words, it says here, grant me to escape the aerial legions, means all the demons in the air. Aerial legions, a lot, that of tormentors without grief at the hour of my departure. That is a reference again to the tithes. But isn't it funny? It comes from the service of St. John Chrysostom, but we're not asking him for help. We're asking, again, it's in the section which is referring to the Mother of God. Now, those poor dodos that wrote that note in the previous where they said 
There are, there are no prayers in the departure of the soul of the tollhouses. So I had to get my magnifying glass even, and I started to study this, the, the prayers before the departure of the soul. And this is what I came across. Number one, behold the multitude of evil. This is what the priest is saying. It comes from the canon before the departure of the soul. So when a person's dying, this is what the priest reads for that soul. Behold, a multitude of evil spirits stand before me. So the priest is speaking in the, in the person of the person that's dying. Behold, the multitude of evil spirits stand before me, holding the list of my sins, crying out loudly, shamelessly, seeking my humble soul. There's a reference to the list of sins. Um, have mercy on me, all holy angels of God Almighty, and deliver me from all the evil tax collectors. I have no good deeds to balance against my evil deeds. The balance, the tax collectors, the exact reference, etc. But you know, by the time these services were developed, the fathers had already pretty much standardised the terminology of tax collectors, etc. So. That one is referring to the angels. The next one. Grant that I might escape from the multitude of bodiless barbarians and rise through the aerial realm and enter into heaven so that I might glorify you forever, O holy Theotokos. Again, a prayer talking about the barbarians, meaning the demons that are viciously trying to stop the, the soul rising up through the aerial realm, which is through the air. And what last one, as I depart from earth, grant that unhindered I may pass by the prince of the air, the tormentor, the guardian of the dread path, in other words, in the air, the violent one and the examiner. Because we said there's, a, there's like a court going up, the trial. They are all from the service before the departure of the soul. So that's a lie for people to say that it doesn't exist. References, now other examples of holy services, just quickly. References to the tollhouses can be found in the Ephkoloion and service books, that's the priest's books, etc., and in various akathists and canons, especially to the Mother of God, as well as to various saints found in the Menau, the 12 volumes of daily services to the saints. Conclusion, in the words of St. Ignatius, the teaching of the tollhouses is found throughout the divine services of the Orthodox Church as a generally known and accepted teaching. The church declares and reminds its children of it in order to sow in their hearts a soul-saving fear and to prepare them for a safe transition from this life to the next life. That's an, a conclusion of St. Ignatius. Now, who would you rather listen to? St. John Damascene or these spiritually weak, demented people who have come out of these um, theological schools, whether they're bishops, whether they're theologians, whether they're monks, or whether they're priests. I will say what St. Paul says. Even if an angel of God comes down and preaches anything different to what we have taught you, anathema. Anathema means be cut off from God. Elder Porphyrios writes, One's, one secret is to be found in the divine services. As we read the divine services with love, we are sanctified without being aware of it. Abandon yourself to these and the grace of God will overtake you mystically. The divine words fill our hearts with gladness. Why I put that in is because people say this, the, the, the monks have more of a chance to become holy. 
And the reason for that is not because they're not married. It's just the fact that they are continually involving themselves with the services of the church, with prayer. Prayer sanctifies, and this, as Saint, um, as Elder Porfirio says, one becomes mystically sanctified through the doing the service. So you people are not monastics, fair enough. You don't have the uchtoichos, even though you can buy them if you want. But you can still do akathis and canons and just do that, read those uh, services as part of your prayer and you will be opened up into the spiritual world. I feel sorry when people say, I don't pray, I don't read the Bible, I don't read Lives of Saints, I don't read Orthodox writings, and I don't pray. You know, I haven't got time. But you've got time to check the stock markets, you've got time to look at your internet banking, and you've got time to access your stinking Facebook. <laughs> C, the toll houses in the writings of the Holy Fathers. The teaching of the toll houses is, without a doubt, a teaching of the church. We find this teaching in the most ancient church tradition and throughout the history of the church in the writings of the Holy Fathers. Number one, St. John Chrysostom, which I read last, I'll read it quickly. We need to come into our end now. What time is it? I'm going good. St. John Chrysostom, describing the hour of deaf teachers. Now, when I, when I say St. John Chrysostom, that means we stand at attention because we're talking about St. John Chrysostom. Not these modernists and other people. Actually, Gregory has said that he's always told me, and he says to me, um, it just reminded me now when I said to stand, he said, why don't you get the people sometimes to stand up for a minute and then sit down just because it helps with the circulation to help the person wake up. So if you want, why don't we stand not just for that, like Gregory suggests, which is still a good idea, but why don't we use the standing up to show the respect and the honour to the Holy Fathers like St John Chrysostom. Before you stand, when, uh, when someone died, which I can't remember, I just read it recently, when someone died and they were taken to heaven, they were shown, you know, heaven, and they were saddened. I can't remember, do you remember who it was? Anyway, they were saddened, and the angel said to them, why are you saddened? And they said, because I saw all the saints, but I didn't see St. John Chrysostom. And the angel said, where John Chrysostom is, you can't see him, because he is standing at the throne of God. That shows you who is St. John Chrysostom. And we're not going to have any blasphemers from the theological schools coming along and say to us that things that are completely wrong. Let's see what St. John Chrysostom says, the one who stands at the throne of God and not, at, not the graduate of some um, Western university. Then we will need many prayers, many helpers when we die, many good deeds, a great intercession from angels on the journey through the spaces of the air, if when travelling in a foreign land or a strange city we are in need of a guide, how much more necessary for us are guides and helpers to guide us past the invisible authorities and powers, the world rulers of the air, who are called persecutors and publicans and tax collectors. 
He refers to them as tax collectors. So he's not only saying here how we help the dead and how much we will need help, good deeds and prayers, etc. But he's saying that we need a guide, and the guide is the angels. And because we have to go through the air of the, um, the tax collectors, the toll houses. Number two, Saint Isaiah the recluse, a sixth century father of the Philokalia, teaches when the soul leaves the body, angels accompany it. The dark powers come out to meet it, desiring to detain it, and, te- and testing it to see if they might find something of their own in it. Homily 17. That, that's clear. When the soul leaves the body, angels accompany it. That's what we read in Saint Theodora. The dark powers come out to meet it. We read that in St. Theodora and today in other lives of saints. Desiring to detain it, hence the toll houses, and testing to see if they might find something of their own in it. St. Gregory the Great, the Roman saint, the, um, uh, writes, 604, one must reflect deeply on how frightful the hour of death will be for us. Then the evil spirits will seek out in the departing soul its deeds, then they will present before its view the sins towards which they had disposed it during their life, in other words, so as to draw their accomplice to torment. That's homilies on the gospel, and that's Bishop Ignatius um, quotes it, but it comes from, those were the words of St. Gregory the Great. Um, he's the one who put together this pre-sanctified liturgy. So we have to think about the hour of death, and we have to think about how the evil spirits will seek out the depart- in the departing soul its deeds, its evil deeds, in other words. Then they will present before its view the sins towards which they have disposed it. In other words, because the demons are the ones that make us sin, and they're the ones that write everything down. And so as to draw their accomplice, means that because we participated in the sin with them, they want to draw us in and say, you are ours, and to torment it, torment the soul. Saint Ephraim the Syrian, 373. Thus describes the hour of death and the judgment at the toll houses. Let's see what he says. Again, another great saint. I won't make you stand up. But when we say Saint Ephraim the Syrian, that's another great holy father of the Orthodox Church. Now, he did not graduate from the theological colleges of today. He graduated from the desert. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you one little, I'll confess one thing. When I first came to the church, I didn't, really, I didn't understand much and still don't, but I've, I was worse then. So when I came to the church and I went to Manaphos, and because I was teaching intellectual and all this type of stuff, I believed that orthodoxy is how much you know and how much you can remember. And I had a good memory and um, I could read and remember things. So I believed that the standard of someone to be spiritual and to be good was their knowledge. As I was struggling, I began to notice the pride. And the pride I saw, because I read as well, since I was such a good reader, I read it, that the pride is what obstructs us from receiving the grace of God. And I began to battle with this pride and found that it was, it was just about impossible. The pride was so deep and deep in all of us. So when I went to Mount Athos and I met monks there that were so some educated ones, but there were so many that hadn't even gone to school. I think they went a couple of years. And they were full of humility. And I saw that knowledge puffeth up, as St. Paul says. Knowledge makes us proud. 
Knowledge makes us puffed up that we're something. But these people were full of grace and the humility that they had was so great that I felt absolutely, one can say, revolting in front of them. I felt like I was repulsive compared to their humility. Then I began to understand that no, orthodoxy is not in knowledge, but orthodoxy is in humility. Um, the angels, so Saint Ephraim was, uh, I don't even know, was he, I don't think, but a lot of these people weren't really, some of them were, like Saint Cure of Alexandria, Saint John Chrysostom was extremely um, educated, Saint Basil the Great, Saint Gregory, Saint Gregory Palamas, a lot of these people were great holy fathers of education, and a lot of them were not. The church has room for both. The intellect, Saint Elder Paisio says, if you've got, if you're intelligent and holy, that's a bonus. So you can be intelligent because then Saint John Christum was a highly intelligent person, but he used his intelligence in a humble way. He allowed God to work through him and he enlightened the world. And, but when you've got intelligence with no humility, then you are a walking demon. The angels taking the soul, says Saint Ephraim the Syrian, ascend in the air where stand the chiefs, the authorities, and world rulers of the opposing powers. These are our accusers, the fearful publicans, record keepers, tax collectors, they meet it on the way, they meet the soul on the way with their lists, examine and count out the sins and debts of this man, the sins of youth and old age, voluntary and involuntary sins, committed in deed, word and thought. Great is the fear here, great the trembling of the poor soul, indescribable the want which it suffers then from the immeasurable multitude of its enemies surrounding it there in great number slandering it so as not to allow it to ascend to heaven, to dwell in the light of the living, to enter the land of life. But the holy angels, taking the soul, lead it away. Is that, Nicholas, an exact description of the toy houses? And who said it? Was it, a, was it one of those bishops? No. St. Kirill of Alexandria. The most thorough discussion among the early Church Fathers of the Doctrine of the Aerial Toll Houses is set forth in the homily on the departure of the soul of St. Kirill of Alexandria, who died in 444. Now, what they're saying is that St. Kirill wrote detail about the toll houses in his homily on the departure of the soul. And we know that St. Kirill, again, is one of those that you stand up for. He is a great holy father, he was uh, involved, he was the, the main bishop who defended the, theo, the, the dogma of the Theotokos, that she gave birth to God, in the third ecumenical council against Nestorius, which, um, those of you who haven't got one of these books, the Curse Grid Icon, in the back, I, you know, with God's help, I did a little simple story, uh, life of the, um, I put St. John, St. John Archbishop of Shanghai, his story about it. And then I put some little things in here of the life of um, St. Kirill of Alexandria describing his, his struggles. So, 
He says the following. What fear and trembling await you, O soul, in the day of death? You will see frightful, wild, cruel, unmerciful, and shameful black demons standing before you. The very sight of them is worse than any torment. The soul seeing them becomes agitated, is disturbed, troubled, seeks to hide, hastens to the angels of God. The holy angels hold the soul, passing with them through the air, and rising, it encounters the toll houses which guard the path from earth to heaven, detaining the soul and hindering it from ascending further. Each toll house tests the sins corresponding to it, each sin, each passion has its tax collectors and testers. And that is um, St. Kirill of Alexandria, and that is, without a doubt, the teaching of the toll houses. Other holy fathers, which I'm, I'm going to just list them now because I don't want to go through more, and we're coming to um, the, the last part. This is still, the, this is, we're still part C. This is the writing of the holy fathers. Part A was the lives of saints. Part B was in the service of the church. Part C is the writings of the Holy Fathers. The first one was the lives. Did, did I say that? Anyway, the first one's the lives of saints, part A. Part B is the services. Part C is the writing of the Holy Fathers. And part D will be the scripture. But let's look at the... Um, in the councils from the Holy Mountain by Elder Ephraim of Arizona in his book, there is a note, as I said, about the toll houses. And this is what the note says. Although some modern theologians doubt the existence of the toll houses, toll houses are mentioned either directly or indirectly by countless saints, including St. Paul, 1st century, St. Macarius of Egypt, which we heard today, 4th century, St. Basil the Great, 4th century, St. Ephrem the Syrian, 4th century, St. Kirill of Alexandria, 5th century, Ava Isaiah, which I read that as well, 6th century, St. Isichius the priest, 5th century, Saint Didachos of Fotiki, 5th century. Saint Theognostos, 14th century. Saint Athanasius the Great, 4th century. Saint John Chrysostom, 4th century. Saint John the Latter, 7th century. We went through that. We went through Saint John as well, Chrysostom. Saint John of Damascus, 8th century. Saint Ignatius Branchenino of 19th century. Saint Theophan the Recluse, 19th century. Saint John of Kronstadt, 20th century. Saint John Maximovich, 20th century, and I put, this is not what the, the Father of Friend book said, but I'm, I add this, and if I may add, St. Eustin Popovich in his book Dogmatic Theology, who is regarded by the Orthodox world as the greatest dogmatic theologian of the 20th century, as well as the, the reference in the Father of Friend's book says, as well as by the Menea and the Paraklitiki, which is the Octoikos, etc. Conclusion. Many other Holy Fathers before and after St. Kirill discuss or mention the toll houses. We can conclude that the teacher of the toll houses has been universally used in the church, especially among the teachers of the 4th century, which indisputably testifies that it was handed down to them from the teaching, teachers of the preceding centuries and is founded on apostolic tradition. What St. Kirill wrote, he would have got from the fathers before him, which is down to the apostles. So, what if we see? What if we see now? What did Saint Vincent of Lorraine say? What is orthodox is that which is believed by all, everywhere, at all times. Two thousand years, that teaching exists. It's been taught in every Orthodox church in the world. 
and believed by all, except for the new modernists, which let's dispense with them. So um, that's that one. And to finish off, the toll houses in Holy Scripture, which is one page, I'm going good for time actually. I can't believe I did it. Orthodox Christians are fortunate to have the teaching of the aerial toll houses and the particular judgment clearly set forth in numerous patristic writings and lives of saints. So, you know, the other churches don't have that. We do. Because we have the fathers, like I just read to you, the lives of saints, the service of the church. We have such a wealth of of this teaching presented to us on the, on the um, toll houses. But actually, Father Seraphim Rose says, any person who carefully reflects on nothing more than Holy Scripture will come to a very similar teaching. So Father Seraphim says, but even if someone doesn't know about the tr tradition like we have, but they just read the Bible, even there one can come to the conclusion that toll houses exist. St. Paul in his epistle writes, the spirits of wickedness under the heavens, and that means in the air. So that already tells us that the demons live in the air. And their chief is the prince of the powers of the air. The apostle Paul writes, in his apostle Peter writes, first epistle five, chapter five, line eight, uh, your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So the fathers of the, the it's all it's a well-known fact that the devil's prowling around like a lion to catch to catch souls. That happens to us while we're alive, but it also happens to us after our death. And um, Saint Paul also writes and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, judgment. So, there's much more. There's one more, St. Gregory the Great writes, Why do we speak only of, of the sinful soul when they come even to the chosen, meaning the demons? Don't just come to sinful people, they even come to the saints to try and uh, take their souls among the dying and seek out their own in them. And they, and they have succeeded with them. Among men... There was only one who before his suffering fiercely said the following. There was only one who the demons had nothing to say. And it is he who says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Now, that were the words of Christ, John 14, 30, where he actually says that the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. And that is a reference to the toll houses because the ruler of this world, meaning the demons, come to every single person, well, Orthodox would say, who's dying to try and find some fault, some sin to, to take that person. And the only person that was sinless was, of course, uh, Christ. As for the saints, some of them passed, obviously, but even they needed help. Um, now... I want to leave off on something here, and I think what a, what a wonderful way to end the talk. Father Seraphim quotes someone, 
who came to the conclusion that the toll houses exist. This is what this person wrote, and I'll tell you who the person is at the end. At the moment, this person says, he, he wrote a book on angels. He said, at the moment of death, the spirit departs from the body and moves through the atmosphere. That's correct, isn't it? But the scripture teaches that the devil lurks there. He is the prince of the power of the air. This person doesn't have tradition. He's just working this out himself. If the eyes of our understanding were open, one would probably see the air filled with demons, the enemies of Christ. That's orthodox, actually. If Satan could hinder the angel of Daniel for three weeks on his mission to earth, so from that he, he understands that the demons do hinder people. You know. um, we can imagine the opposition a Christian may encounter at death. The moment of death is Satan's final opportunity to attack the true believer, to attack the true believer, which is what I read early on. But it's like the, the final battle. But God has sent his angels to guard us at that time. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's a little bit... Um, it's not using the tonghouses, not using the terminology of the Orthodox Church. But everything that's written there is Orthodox. But the person who wrote it is not Orthodox. And to me... Nicholas, it's embarrassing. I'm going to say who it is. To me, it's embarrassing of the level that we've got, that we have orthodox bishops, priests, theologians, etc., who deny the teaching of the toll houses, even though they are so obvious in all the sources that I read. And I just read some tonight. I could be here all night and give you much more. There was much more. I had to cut it all out because it was too much. It is embarrassing when this person comes along who's not even orthodox and basically, in, in, in basic way, is talking about the toll houses and our own orthodox people don't believe in it. Who do you think it is, Nicholas? Now, when I tell you, now don't get scandalised because I've had some people who've been scandalised in the past. For example, when I did talk 11, 12 about how it's no good to date, most of you remember it, and um, there was one guy here who uh, was orthodox, but he'd gone into Protestant churches and he got all confused and, and he finally said he was coming back to orthodoxy. So he was listening to the talks and he liked them until I told him that I used one particular book for some ideas because the Orthodox Church in some ways doesn't, has not treated the topic properly. So I got the ideas from, the, from this book and presented them in an Orthodox way. And no one ever complained about it because that, those talks are being put all, sold all around America. And no one's ever come back. And I told this person, I actually used a Protestant book from some Protestant pastor there that he spoke about... Um, dating and how it's bad, etc., etc. And I, I got some ideas then, actually took the ideas and presented them from an orthodox perspective. He never came back because he thought I was a heretic because I'm using Protestant things. Poor thing. So, 
And, and one more example is um, a lot of people don't like the book Unseen Warfare because Saint Nicodemus revised it and Saint Theophan the Recluse edited it. And that book was originally a book written by a Roman Catholic monk of the 16th century. And people say, Western, Western, no, it's no good, it's bad, bad. But what they did is they, they, they took the, that book, got the, some ideas of some structure, and then made it orthodox. Now, of course, some people can actually even accuse me and say, that priest used X factor in his talk. He's not orthodox. So people are very confused and everyone's a theologian today. Everyone knows everything about everything and everyone judges everyone in the wrong way. I mean, you can judge, but make sure you judge in the right way. They judge what we call orthikrisi, which in Greek means right judgment. The person next door is a convicted pedophile, so I'm not going to invite him over when I've got little children because I am making a... a um, a, a correct judgment that that person's dangerous. Now, some other idiots that come along that take everything out and go, that's judging. That's judging. See, we don't even know what is what's called in Greek katakrisis, which means uh, in English it's katak uh, is um, is a judgment which is like bad judgment when you're judging someone. And when you're making a judgment that something's not right and you have to avoid it, it doesn't mean that you're condemning the person that he's going to go to hell. So, the person who wrote that wonderful little section there was the Protestant evangelist Billy Graham, who is uh, a well-known Protestant, and I do not, um, I mean, he's not orthodox. What are you, why, Father Seraphim actually used his example, and I said, this is what a, I think why Father Seraphim used it is to say that even Blind Billy himself could work out that, um, when I say Blind Billy, I mean spiritually blind because he doesn't have orthodox sources. And even he worked out that toll houses exist while we have the blasphemous today hierarchs and priests and bishops, etc. It is forbidden, for example, in the orthodox church, the Greek orthodox church in America, many bishops forbid their priest to speak about the toll houses. One priest actually said to someone, um, when, when I went to seminary over there in, in America, he goes, uh, we weren't taught anything like that. And we were told it's not true. So this is a blasphemy. It's a heresy, it's wrong because it's distorting the teaching of the church. And it's embarrassing when a Protestant comes along and actually comes to the conclusion, and we know that Billy Graham, he believes just in the Bible. But even him, that God allowed him to come to the correct teaching. When they, when they produced that blasphemous movie years ago in the 80s called The Last Temptation of Christ, which is a horrible, stupid, blasphemous movie, there was a debate somewhere in the world, I won't say where. And they had a panel of clergymen, clergymen, on there to talk about their, this uh, thing because people were going to cinemas, people were vandalising, people were screaming and shouting and, and, and saying that this is blasphemy, etc., etc. So there was a big thing going on in that, in that time. Some of you who are older might have remembered. 
Like in Greece, um, even clergy, they went into the cinema and they um, basically um, destroyed the cinema because they said that that film should not be seen. It's blasphemous. So they came to this debate and there was an Orthodox bishop there and there was some as a Catholic there and there was also a Protestant there, someone similar to Billy Graham. It wasn't Billy Graham but someone who believes in the Bible only. So the Orthodox bishop said that he wasn't scandalised with the film and then he started to say that there is something about that, that Christ was inclined to sin, some blasphemies, stupidities that were coming out of his heretical mouth. And what happened was that the Protestant who was present on, on national television said, after this orthodox bishop spoke and basically said that the film in a way is correct, that Christ could have the inclination towards sin and other demonic things that came out of his mouth, the Protestant said, I don't care what liberal theologians say, but Christ was born without sin. And he was emphatic. And he spoke from his heart. He said, I don't care what liberal theologians say, meaning referring to the idiot next to him, the wolf in sheep's clothing that was sitting next to him, who is an orthodox bishop, and in front of the whole world saying that Christ was born with sin because he actually did say that in one of his uh, epistles in church, was read, and um, that he believes that. And the Protestant comes along with no idea of the lives of saints, no idea of the writings of the Holy Fathers, no idea of service of the church, no idea of tradition, nothing at all. All he had was the Bible. And he said and confessed and said that I don't care what liberal theologians got to say, but Christ was born sinless. Remember that when Christ came to earth and he became a man, the, uh, the Pharisees and the, and the ones who were supposed the teachers of the Jewish nation didn't recognise him. They said he's possessed, he's, he's, he's a fool, he's, he's deceived, and anyone that goes near him, they'll be excommunicated from the synagogue, etc. And what, did, and what happened? That God allowed the demons themselves to confess that he is the son of God. The, son, the father said that the demons confessed Christ's divinity when it should have been the Pharisees, the scribes who read all about the Messiah uh, in those days, because they were teachers of the law. They read. They knew the law. But they, they were so spiritually blind because of their love of glory and money, etc., that they couldn't see that Christ was the Messiah, the one spoken about in the Old Testament. 
Today, we come again. The same type of things come in, but not, not that I want to say that the, the Protestants are demons. No, I'm trying to say here that the Protestants are blind. And I don't put them down, that's, they don't know. But they are spiritually blind to some, le- in, to some extent. And yet, they are in some ways confessing the truth of certain orthodox teachings that our own hierarchs deny and say to their people through synods that the teaching of the toll house is not true. The toll house is not true. And that they instruct their flock not to believe in such things. The same church, of course, who also believes that the monophysites, it was a mistake and that they actually commune them, etc. But let's leave that for another day. So, in the, old t- sorry, in the times of Christ, the demons spoke. In our times now, the Protestants are speaking. Not that, as I said, not, I'm not comparing them to demons, but I'm trying to say that even they can come to conclusions just from the Bible and these fools, these de- blind, demented people cannot even come to the truth with all the tradition of the Orthodox Church. Who do you think is going to give way? People say, oh, Protestants, some idiots say, Protestants are going to go to hell and the Cubs are going to go to hell and all, everyone's going to go to hell. But the thing is, we shouldn't look at that. What I say, I say orthodoxy is the truth. But I, I'm, I don't fall into pride about it. In, why? Because we as orthodox will give word more than anyone else on this planet who have lived and who will live. At the last judgment, we will be judged more than them. And when we have Protestants who deny many parts of the Orthodox Church but confessing things better than Orthodox bishops and priests, etc., then I think we're going to be surprised on the last day who's going to be saved and who's not. Does that mean they're going to be saved? That's not in my business. I don't know if I'm going to be saved. All I know is I'm Orthodox, I know the truth, and if I don't... If I don't um, keep that truth and I die, then I will go to hell. As for the others, they'll be all judged according to their conscience. I thought that was excellent to end off with Protestant evangelist Billy Graham. Did you think so, Nicholas? Did you think it was good? Billy Graham, I think he flipped it. He what? I don't think he came to that conclusion because he commented. I think he flipped it. Why not? The... the, um, the astrologers came to the conclusion that if they follow the star, that it's something to do with the Messiah, etc. And remember that even in pagan religion, in the pagan religion, before Christ came, even though the, the Jews existed, but the pagans had nothing to do with the Jews, that many times God enlightened them in certain aspects of the truth. They actually had sparks of the truth. Even to the Buddhists, even to the Muslims, even to the Jews, even to all everyone that God is merciful and loving and gives them to the best of his, whatever the, their ability is, he gives them parts of the truth. You see, in our minds, we think, no, God only, only gives the truth to the orthodox. But that's not correct. Because if God is loving and merciful and, and, and long-suffering, then 
he will try to give the truth. And that's why when you read um, or hear things about some of these people, you actually see, oh, that's a bit of truth there. That's a bit of a truth there too. That's a bit there. And they will be judged according to how they make use of that truth which they've got. But we will be judged who have, who have the entire truth. And that's why, Nicholas, I don't involve myself with the others because I'm not sure about myself. And, and, and actually, because I teach all these things too, so I'm not, not only do I just read them and learn them myself, but I'm actually reading them so I'll be judged because I also am teaching uh, the orthodox, the, 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 these things. But when I teach them, I always try to say that um, uh, I'm limited and that a lot of times that I don't, uh, that I can't even come near to the right thing. And all I can say is that, Lord, have mercy. So when I say that, I'm applying that to myself. We all fall short of what we're supposed to do, but at least we can trust in God's mercy, as the man in the St. John of the Ladder said, but with God there is mercy. Okay, we are finished. And um, that was quite comfortably, I can't believe I actually finished it all. Yes? Oh, yeah, I just remembered something. I think in the lives of saints, like, there was one person who was firstly like a philosopher. And then, I don't know, he had no conception of the church. And, but he was sort of, he had a feeling that his knowledge was limited. So he was like, I don't know, searching for something. And then someone did... That might have been Saint Justin the philosopher, Maybe, uh, and there are many others as well who um, yeah. saw that, like Saint John Chrysostom, he was brought up in the in the religion of the pagans, etc. But he saw that there's it's it's empty, and then they then they started to study Christian, and then they came, and that's why the pagans actually said one big pagan pagan um, person used to speak. He, he, they said to him as he was dying, who do you want to take your place as, you know, as this preacher of, of the pagan religion? And he goes, I wanted um, John, but the Christians stole him. So he was upset that, that St John Christum became Christian because he was a great preacher as well. He had a gift. Um, so yes, many of them saw that, that it's all empty. Yes? No. Uh, but, um Mm -hmm. um, so Moses' body, was it? Yeah. I don't know, I couldn't even know if it was the body or the soul. Um, I was just wondering, is that referencing to the whole house? Well, Nicholas, the answer to that is that I don't know. Because I can tell you things that I've researched, that I've, that I've read from the Holy Fathers. Um, when, you, when you mention things from the Bible, and I'm not for... Conf um, com um, familiar with, I won't answer because then I become like a bit of a demonic person where I'm saying, mm, now Nicholas has asked me a question and he's asked in front of everyone and I've got to answer for the sake of it so I won't be embarrassed. But for me, I don't really care because I don't know. I don't know. I haven't read the interpretation. To present this talk, I read um, The Soul After Death, large aspects of it. I read The Lives of Saints. I read the, this book here. Metropolitan, the authors, Vlachos, and I read the 
the decision of the Synod of the Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox Church abroad, with regard to the controversy between those priests and Father Seraphim. I read Father Michael Pomazarsky. I read all those things and I put them all together and presented it. Now, other things, if someone quotes that, and I don't know, I will say I don't know, because I don't want to, I don't want to blaspheme and make up. So I think it's the body, but the exact... The problem with the epistles of St. Paul is that I don't have any interpretations for them. The, we have the Theophilact, the four books on the interpretations, but those people that did those translations have not produced as yet the interpret... Because St. John Chrysostom also interpreted... Sorry, Theophilact also interpreted the other epistles, all the epistles, but I haven't got them. So the problem with me is that when I find something in the, in the New Testament, in the epistles... And I want to know what it means. I don't have somewhere to go. So what I do is I just wait, and then while I'm reading Orthodox books and they refer to something in the epistles and read it, like I did today, they refer to Peter uh, and St. Paul where he says it's person to... I often read years ago, a person lives once and then judgment. But of course, years ago, I never knew what does that mean exactly. But when I started re researching on this, and I said, oh, this refers to the particular judgment. So I finally understood it. So that's what I do, and I advise you to do the same. Never interpret anything that you don't know of for the sake of interpreting it because you or me or anyone that does it will fall into deception. Everyone in the Old Testament went to Hades, and only when Christ came, he abolished Hades, uh, the, the, the passage. He opened the passage. He opened up that passage through the air for people to be able to go to heaven. Oh, that's a good point, see? Out of the mouth of babes. Um, that she said it couldn't have been because that, there was no um, toll houses in those days. I've got my answer, see? Show humility and then the answers come. And that, and that often happens. Okay, stand up, please. Think about what you've heard and apply them and don't come for knowledge just apply what you've heard with humility through the prayers of our holy fathers lord jesus christ our god of mercy and save us amen